Today's episode of the Film Stage Show is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service showcasing exceptional films from around the globe. For your free 30-day trial, go to mubi.com slash filmstage. Cause you're Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to a brand new episode of the Film Stage Show, the movie review podcast from filmstage.com. As always, I'm your host, Brian J. Rowan. With me today, we have Rob Barr. Hello. We also have Bill Graham. See this award? It's been given to me because of all the bullshit I deal with. I'm, I'm going to assume that's a reference to the movie, <laughs> which, which I did not watch, which we'll get into shortly. Um, with us today to talk about that movie, which is Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, it's Rebecca Sun. Uh, I love who, thank you to whoever's responsible for that needle drop, um, Michelle Branch. Very thematic because she is also like Olivia Rodrigo, secret member of the Asian tribe. So it's great. I see. So the, uh, it's me. I'm the guy who chooses all of the music. Um, so first of all, thank you. And second of all, I love Michelle Branch. <laughs> and I play her every <laughs> chance I have the option to. Um, and yeah, I, I was not able to see this movie, so I will not be a super involved part of this conversation. And I was like, I still need a song though. And, uh, everywhere by Michelle Branch seemed to fit if only because it's got a title that is related to the title of the movie we're talking about. That's good enough. I still love your Chevelle. Like that was probably my favorite needle <laughs> drop. I downloaded it immediately. Yes. (laughs) Oh my gosh, Chevelle, that's who, because I was listening to it and I was like, I know this song. Mm -hmm. Yes, you do. I know this song. And then I was like, I don't remember when, but uh, that's incredible. Yeah, that's right. Wow, I haven't thought about the name of that artist in 20 years. Y'all are welcome. (laughs) Ninth grade. Ah, man. The dances, hands on shoulders, awkward swing. Um. Did you say you? Who went to dances? Uh, Me and all of my friends. We all went to the dances. What are you talking about? Oh, dorks. All right. Well, can't wait until (laughs) we have an opportunity to talk about that on a movie that involves uh, teenagers dancing, I guess. Um, The prom. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The next uh, Olivia Wilde movie. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Rebecca, would you like to introduce yourself to our listening audience? Oh, sure. Uh, My name is Rebecca Sun, and I am a senior editor at The Hollywood Reporter. Uh, My current beat is I'm in charge of our diversity, inclusion, coverage, and initiatives. So uh, that's what I do professionally, but I'm just uh, so happy to be here and so happy to chat about a movie I've seen um, a wild number of times. Nice. Here at the film stage, we love DEIA, so that is awesome. Um. That is, <laughs> I just realized I said the acronym, uh, diversity, inclusion, equity, and accessibility. Um, mm-hmm. So that's awesome. Accessibility. Yeah. Cool. So I yeah, work, it's a nice, important component. Yeah. So, I mean, like, that's, I work, I work partially for the government. Um, and so DEIA is a big thing that the government's pushing now, which is pretty awesome that I get to be a part of working on that. So. My institution has like its own nomenclature and we never, and I work in accessibility as, as my platform job, but like we it never comes up <laughs> as part of like the the language aspect of it yeah i think it's still fairly you know new in in the sense of the like sort of mainstream awareness because even for me my like i don't think that you know admittedly i it was 
a big part of my awareness until this past year. And I think a lot of what helps, you know, entertainment circles, which is, you know, the specific industry that I apply DEI to is, there's a lot of it had to do with CODA and the fact that we had a super long award season. And so that was really great. And hopefully it'll be a lasting component. Um, the our parent company at the Hollywood Reporter uses a cool acronym, or they used it at one point, which was Jedi, which I I really liked actually. Oh my god! And the J stands for justice, and so I was like oh. justice, equity, diversity, inclusion. I thought that was really cute, nice. um, and important. So that's anyways, not PMC. The whole, it is PMC. I okay. was like, oh, PMC Probably Jedi. Okay, that's a, but then I haven't heard it again. Um, <laughs> but um, oh, okay. it's you know, all of these are all of these are um, you know attributes to which we should aspire. So well, very cool. Uh, hashtag bring Jedi back. Um, yeah, I I as a as a technical writer and editor working for the government, I have had to be aware of of accessibility for as long as I've done my job because anything that is produced for the government needs to be accessible to literally mm-hmm. everyone. So like I'm the type of person Me who I'll look at a sign and be like, egg. that font is too small. The colors are too similar to each the other. The contrast isn't there. Right. The contrast isn't there. I'll see a table and I'll be like, that table isn't formatted, formatted so that an automated reader can parse the rows and the mm-hmm. columns. Like what's wrong with you, you monsters. Um, but That's yeah. awesome. Thank you, ADA. Yeah. Welcome <laughs> to my life. Yes. Um, so that's awesome. Welcome to the DIA Jedi cast. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we are here today uh, not to talk about DIA, uh, though it is an important thing to talk about. Uh, but we are here to talk about everything, everywhere, all at once. This is the new film from Daniels. I'm just going to say Daniels because that's what I'm saying. Daniels. Everywhere. No. Okay. Mm-hmm. I thought that too, Bill. I just looked at the trailer that's how they're introduced a lot in the, okay so. but in the trailer it says from daniels no definite article and we all know if we listen to this podcast enough that i am obsessive about trying to get definite articles correct because i, I will I, I will say that I, I i also looked very closely into this when i was writing a story <laughs> about the movie um a couple of months ago and so i i like checked the language they used in the press kit and i believe that they do just go with as Daniels and I've never asked them about it, but I'm assuming that because they're such like humble, self-effacing guys, they, they probably don't want to speak for all Daniels. So I think they do. <laughs> oh, wow. We admit Daniels. that there are in fact other Daniels in the world. <laughs> yes. Like Lee Daniels. <laughs> <laughs> right. So they can't be the Daniels. Cause then people might hear Lee Daniels when they say their name. True. Which now that I've said that, I wonder if that was obviously a consider- honestly a consideration. But anyway, we're here to talk about everything, <laughs> everywhere, all at once. Uh, newest uh, film released by A24. And uh, this movie stars uh, Michelle Yeoh. So that's awesome. And I can't wait to talk about that. Uh, not with all of you people, because I did not see the movie. Uh, it's very odd opening up an episode that I'm not going to be a part of. <laughs> anyway, uh, I can talk about the fact that you should follow us on Twitter at Film Stage Show, Facebook, The Film Stage Show. Email us, podcast, filmstage.com. And, of course, give us a comment or reading on iTunes. And you can go to patreon.com slash show to become patrons of this podcast for as little as $1 an episode. You get access to our super cool Slack channel and uh, the ability to talk with us uh, in real time, which uh, has been a nightmare today. <laughs> <laughs> uh, boy, but it's a fun nightmare. Anyway, uh, we are also brought to you, of course, by Mubi, the curated streaming service that showcases exceptional films from around the globe. Every day, Mubi premieres a brand new film. Whether it's a timeless classic, a cult favorite, or an acclaimed masterpiece, it's guaranteed to be either a movie you've been dying to see or one you've never heard of before, and there will always be something new to discover. 
With the movie, every film is hand-selected, so you'll never spend more time looking for something great to watch. Instead, you'll actually be watching something great. It's like your own personal film festival streaming anytime, anywhere. And uh, the movie that I wanted to talk about today, <laughs> there's a couple that just have great names. Uh, for instance, one of them is Can She Bake a Cherry Pie? But I wanted to talk about Where Does Your, Smi- Where Does Your Hidden Smile Lie, a 2001 film. <clears throat> a masterpiece about the making of a masterpiece, this crepuscular portrait of Straub Hullett's creative... <laughs> pro- don't laugh. <laughs> why are you laughing? Crepuscular. Now you know why I chose this one to talk about. Because Naturally. I rarely get the chance to say crepuscular. Does that mean uh, you're awake at dawn and you... And, and Twilight it am I thinking? is of resembling or relating to Twilight. Ooh, I'm smart. <laughs> I'm smart. <laughs> wow. All right. I only know this because I have a student that um, requested an emotional support rabbit and I had to learn what that meant. <laughs> Speaking of accessibility. N- not an emotional support. Uh, wh- what is it, Brian? Alpaca? Yes, yes. I was very excited. This is so pointless and stupid. I was very excited today to see an ad on my Facebook page for alpaca sweaters, um, which made me feel like a small amount of my having researched alpacas a lot for the color out of space really paid off in my life. Anyway, this movie is... about the making of a masterpiece. This movie is crepuscular. It's about the creative process that has been described by Pedro Costa as both his first comedy and his first love story. Intimate and illuminating and crepuscular. It's an indispensable (laughs) crepuscular lesson in crepuscular filmmaking from three titans of cinema, all of whom are crepuscular. So that is what is on movie right now. (laughs) That creep succular. (laughs) (laughs) Creepy succulence. Um, You can try movie for free for 30 crepuscular days at movie.com slash film stage. That's M-U-B-I.com slash film stage for a whole month of crepuscular cinema for free. Um, I'm now sad that I didn't get a chance to see this movie so I could continue to be on this podcast uh, only describing things as crepuscular from now until the end of time. There'll be uh, other opportunities. Yeah, yeah. It's just, you know, this is such a good opening I just, uh, I wish I could be here, but I can't because I did not have the opportunity to see this movie in a way that I thought would benefit my watching of it. And therefore I decided not to, but we have three great people here who will talk about the movie. And um, yeah, I, uh, I look forward to hearing what all of you have to say after I get a chance to watch it. So uh, is there any more need of me before I leave? Be gone with you. All right, cool. I am going to uh, play the trailer, and then I will fade it out, and then you guys will all be on your own. And uh, Robin Barr, who is now a close personal friend of mine, can text me when uh, y'all are ready to wrap up, and I will return. (laughs) I put you in my phone. Did you? Brian J. Rowan. Oh, that's great. All right, cool. Yay. Oh boy! All right. Anyway, uh, everywhere, every everything, everywhere, all at once. I'm gonna read the IMDb summary before playing the trailer. An aging Chinese immigrant is swept up in an insane adventure where she alone can save the world by exploring other universes, connecting with the lives she could have led. Here is the trailer. This is Wang. This is Wang. Mrs. Wang, are you with us? I am paying attention. Now, you may only see a pile of receipts, but I see a story. 
can see where this story is going. All right, talk. All right, <laughs> let's start with the nutshell thoughts and we'll begin with you, Rebecca, as our guest. Okay. Um, so I think this film is one that, because it's so maximalist, it almost defies the ability to do a nutshell description. But <laughs> I, what I keep coming kind of come, what I keep coming back to is that it's gonzo absurdity, over the top, like fantastical, like all of those outrageous elements are somehow completely matched by a real emotional groundedness in the relationships among the characters and in, in the sort of the, the realism of, of what it's like just to live in our simple, comparatively mundane universe. Like I, that's when I saw the film the first time, that was the thing that was really striking me was that it managed to be all of these things all at once, you know, like it's like, at no point does the 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 completely silly humor and the outlandishness feel gratuitous or does the sort of the the actual logline plot feel um superficial or undersketched it's just it's like that infinite onion that mm-hmm. what is it called at out outback steakhouse the blue and onion the blue and onion it's just, it's like, I like infinite onion. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's, it's never my ending. All it's you my rakakuni. Yeah. Um, but it's, uh, yeah. So it really, like, I will say that, like, if you watch the trailer and you're like, this is going to be the most insane movie ever, it really is. But it also is like the realest drama that I've seen that kind of, kind of somehow depicts the emotional reality, at least of my existence. And that's kind of an incredible thing to do, in my opinion. That's my nutshell. Totally feel you on that one. And Bill, what do you, what do you think? Uh, This movie is bananas. This movie reminds me a lot of um, Scott Pilgrim versus the world. If you hadn't Mm -hmm. kind of known what that was coming into it. Um, There's some other films that some people have kind of bandied about in terms of uh, what it made them kind of think of. But I, I think it's just this special blend of something that is so absurd on its face at first that over time teaches you how to watch it and how to interact with it. And this is a film that you absolutely have to see in theaters. And I know that's, that's a cliche thing to say, but this is that kind of film that really, uh, benefits from having an audience because they will react and and you will understand how it is working on kind of a larger scale than you might expect um, in a crowd full of strangers. Uh, my audience in particular, uh, there was one person that thought a joke 20 minutes in was the, the most funny thing they've ever heard in their entire <laughs> life and like laughed for like two minutes straight. And I was just like, is that person having a heart attack what's going on here Wait, what was um, the joke i don't hell if i know uh but they thought it was funny um and so you know it's one of those things and yeah all around me people were laughing people i could hear sobs i could hear you know some some uh crying and things like that um so yeah it, it was just a, a great community 
like experience to have, um, especially on a packed theater um, with a film that is, to be frank, quite strange and weird um maybe not as strange and weird as uh swiss army man their their other film but man uh it it is a strange and weird film and uh yeah my audience really enjoyed it and i enjoyed it along with them yeah and i'm gonna agree and it's funny how we're all you know sitting here saying how much we like the movie because we're not going to be pushing and pulling, I think um, it's just like overall an enjoyable movie. And I think, as you were saying, Rebecca, it's really rooted in its emotionality. Like we can talk about all the different, you know, throw the pasta at the wall and see what sticks ness of it, because there's so many concepts it's Mm -hmm. edited into oblivion in some ways, a bit of a headache, I think, because there's just so much of this, I don't even know what you would call it, like absurdism, surreality, randomness. Like I could not from moment to moment tell you what was going on. And yet it finds that rootedness, you know, with its performances. Um, So I, I had read this review by David Rooney of the Hollywood reporter um, where I think he really expertly captures kind of my feelings about the movie, which is like, there's a lot going on and that can sometimes feel itchy, but it's so warm and inviting. I mean, maybe I'm paraphrasing what he's saying here, but that's at least my takeaway from his, his critique, which is it, it, there's so much at the, in the skeleton, you know, even if you take away all of what makes it super special, which is the, the absolute, like, randomness weirdness for the sake of weirdness aspect of it which is like their signature but it still has this wonderful story at at the center of it and i think the story really is anchored in those performances michelle yo Mm -hmm. stephanie shu who i love in this movie and who has been a standout in other things like mrs mazel but this is like the movie where i really think of this as her as her um breakout she plays mm-hmm. the daughter um uh, and forgive me i may not be pronouncing oh, this correctly Ki but Hui Kwan. thank you mm-hmm. <laughs> um Ki-Hu, Ki-Hu, uh, Kwan, who i had i've never seen goonies i've never seen indiana jones so i had of I had course no- you haven't of course you haven't <laughs> well i haven't seen the second indiana jones um i've seen the first one but i was this is the first time i'm seeing him on screen i kept thinking like oh my god this guy is so good i where have i seen him for and apparently i haven't he's fantastic <laughs> i hope yeah. he, i hope this blows up his career again because he is wonderful in this movie james mm-hmm. hong and my favorite supporting performance of the, this year is Jamie Lee Curtis, who is playing completely oh against gosh. type. Mm-hmm. Oh, she's so good. Like, ev- like everyone I'm, just I'm, comes together. I'm, I'm not mad that you just name dropped her, but I'm so happy that I did not know that she was in this film. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you hear so much about Michelle Yeoh and, and Kehu Kwan and, you know, all uh, everybody else, but... Y- Jamie Lee's name has been kind of quietly left out of a lot of that stuff. And so when she shows up, I'm looking at her and I'm like, 
the fuck is she doing in this movie? <laughs> so and she's yeah. so good, so she's, funny. She's so good, and it's also like it's a performance that is so. I mean, like they you know, use the phrase like without vanity gets you know overused, but not yeah, only absolutely. is her like on screen totally. appearance like completely without vanity, uh, and, and she uses it to the best effect. I mean, the both of you know, all of the women in this film um, just give themselves over to their characters completely. But also, yeah, just the fact that she's in this film and it's a supporting role and she's Jamie Lee Curtis who has the longest, probably, yeah, she probably has a slightly longer filmography than Michelle, at least definitely in the States and is sort of like happy to play this very critical supporting role in service of a film that is about at its core, this Chinese American family. I love that kind of support. You know, and I do believe H when we're at a place now and and with Michelle and with A24, like the movie could have been made without somebody of her name. But four years ago, you couldn't have. You would have right. needed a Jamie Lee Curtis for the rest of the movie to be made. Um, and it's just and and like also another small camp. Wait, well, let me know when we're getting to the part where we can talk about things that are like quote unquote spoilers. We're um, free. Okay. In spoilers like, section. Like another little like kind of minor thing. Like I just love the fact that like Jenny Slate is like randomly in this movie in like just in like this very tiny but like eff- extremely effective and uproarious and hilarious. Like I just like why is Jenny Slate in this movie? I don't know. I love it though. You know like who's um, bros with Jenny Slate? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um but but yeah, so, uh, you know, white allies, we thank you. <laughs> so I, I, I had to I had to look it up real quick. Um, you were actually right. Uh, in terms of actress credits, at least on IMDb, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis has 83 and Michelle Yao has 68. So. Mm. Oh, although just for funsies, look up James Hong. <laughs> Oh, oh, God, okay. <laughs> he's been acting for 100 years. <laughs> Seriously. But it's all of these. I mean, that's what's amazing, right? Like you have I mean, Jamie Lee is literally Hollywood royalty. right? <laughs> <laughs> like Literally. Oh, my God. OK, <laughs> so James Hong, at least on IMDb actor credits, he has 450 <laughs> actor credits. <laughs> So born in 1929. <laughs> Jesus. That is insane. That Holy sounds about shit. right. But what it, the, and that's what's incredible is because they like the four sort of central Asian characters that make up the family, they all are like they kind of represent these different variations of careers you could have had as an Asian actor in this industry. And so there's a very meta component of it, how, you know, somehow we are, we live in the universe where they could all converge in this part and basically get like the beginnings of their reparations. Cause each of them is playing at least two, mm. if not three or four different characters from this one film. And so they're finally getting a chance to sort of flex the, you know, just sort of their versatility in this one movie in a way in which like, I mean, Ki Hui Kwan has spoken of one of the reasons why you haven't seen him since the Goonies, which was almost 40 years ago is because he started getting, he started getting like a script a year to audition Mm. for. And it was sometimes the characters didn't have names, you know? Oh yeah. And, 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 And they were, they were just 
to be the funny kind of point and laugh character, right? And, and yeah, he's like been very the long, like the long duck dong. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He's he's been very open about that, and he just kind of disappeared for a little while. And uh, you know, in a way, rightfully so. You know, to kind of discover who he wanted to be and what he wanted to do with his life and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, he's he's also like a a actual like. I say actual. I don't know why I said it like that. Uh, he's a martial artist. Like he mm-hmm. holds a black belt and like Taekwondo and stuff like that. And, you know, he's, he's definitely been in the film world for the last few years, for the last, you know, couple of decades. It's just, he hasn't been in front of the screen, especially not here in the States. So. And he's, exactly. I mean, just to put it in like very blunt terms, he's really hot in this movie. <laughs> he's like yeah. he brings the emotionality as this like suffering husband who wants to have a more equitable relationship with his wife mm-hmm. and he's also just like kicking ass <laughs> like which is I, not usually I, my style but I, I heard on a podcast they were talking about how just a good haircut and a good pair of, of frames can just really mm-hmm. do wonders for a person oh just like, yeah that's how I felt <laughs> for my husband Cause we went to high school together and like he had like a buzz cut and just like dorky ass glasses. No offense, honey. And cause he's going to listen to this. Um, and then I saw him like after college, hadn't seen him in years. And he got like the, you know, classic, like 2012, like uh square or rectangular glasses. And he like learned how to gel his hair. And I was like, Oh, Nick got hot. So it's true. It's very true. It can really a good haircut and glasses can change a man. That that I've is I, I agree. That's true. You know, it's it's all in the framing of it, right? Um, and and I'm glad we're talking about you know like speaking Kiwi Kwan. It's it's like one of the main components of what what I want to talk about with this film because I went from like I think the first time I saw the movie, my my feelings towards him was I was I was actually like rageful at the, this industry that sort of like couldn't lacked the imagination to do anything with him for 40 years, yeah, you know? And I was just like, I was just kind of like very angry at just here's like a, a specific person that you could think about that had a whole career, like a whole life uh, generation, like robbed and how we were deprived just because they were like, yeah. I don't, I don't think he can do anything. So I was like really mad. And then I switched to being really sad, like upon subsequent viewings, but now I'm just like, well, look, at least we exist in this universe where hopefully this will be like tr- truly seen as a comeback vehicle, because I, I really do think that like you guys mentioned, um, what they did with his character with Wayman specifically is they kind of very like smartly subverted, like they're leaning into all of the stereotypes you have of that sort of like Asian beta male when, Mm -hmm. when the movie starts, you know, he's the submissive husband who's kind of really meek, you know, the wife is the one who's more steamrolly. And and that is actually also, um, it's a media stereotype, but it also like, to be honest, like to be quite frank, like matches a stereotype within Chinese culture too, is that with, with Chinese people, like I, everybody, my parents age, they're, they're often saying like, yeah, the wife is the domineering one who talks a lot and the husband's a little bit of a doormat. So it's all playing on like real things that I, I believe like kind of resonate in like cultural experience but then what they do with this character, all the different things they do with this character is they, they subvert that, you know, um, in a beautiful way. 
And um, Kihue Kwan was saying on a different podcast, um, can I plug my friend's podcast? They call yes, it please do. So he was saying to they call uh, on this podcast they call us Bruce, which is all about Asian um, Asians Americans and culture, which is he actually gets choked up a little bit on that podcast telling his story and and he's given a few interviews since then like he he was saying that um like sorry i totally lost my train of thought um he he was um just so happy to to get this chance to come back like like he he had just sort of quit because they the industry didn't have a place for him and went behind the scenes you know worked on stunts for movies like x-men and all of these things and then it wasn't until he saw Michelle Yeoh in Crazy Rich Asians in 2018 that the like that's what I feel like we're in right now. Yeah, we're in the Yoasans, and hopefully it will beget the the Quanissance. Mm-hmm. I hope so. I think so. I think so. I think I think our, it, it, the reaction just like across the internet and across like just you know I I was I was telling Erica that you know he was in this film uh, my my wife that I I saw it with and I was like do you recognize him and she was like yeah I, th- I thought I recognized him but I have no idea who that is and I was like mm-hmm. well it's it's this person and this person from you know the Goonies and from Indiana Jones and she was like oh I thought I recognized him like you know because it's been such a long time uh, between those films to see him that you know he has a very distinctive voice Mm -hmm. and he has a very Mm -hmm. distinctive kind of look um but that look will not translate across you know that that much time but certainly the voice does and so i found that fascinating that you know his his voice is so distinctive um and yeah it's i think i think a lot of people are like wow this this guy is really something in this film um you know and I feel like this happens a lot where where filmmakers are like, hey, like, isn't this person great? And people are like, oh, you know what? Yeah, they are great. And so, you know, I, I think I think there will be more more roles and more things written specifically for him. Um, not not just, you know, a you you met you met this criteria, but no, we're going to actually write it to you and everything like that. So I think I think there's something beautiful about that. Yeah, I think if not for the whole Wong Kar Wai homage sequence that you were talking about, Robin, that's the that's mm-hmm. the sequence where he looks very like conventionally handsome. Although, mm-hmm. like as Alpha Wayman, like all he does, yeah. it's it's a very Christopher Reeve type of thing. Like every time he takes off his glasses and his posture straightens, oh, like he's still 100%. wearing he's still wearing a dang fanny pack and dad dad chinos. But the way he carries himself, then it's it's like. It's so it's comical, but it, you can see Evelyn start to like fall for Alpha Waymond, mm-hmm. you know. But if not for the the straight up more conventional leading man sequence, uh, the Wong Kar Wai Alley part, um, I I would have feared that maybe there wasn't like ah like when is a unique thing like this going to come around again? Like, but but it showed that he can do the sort of like traditional like straight gravitas stuff, you know, um, and isn't mm-hmm. just like this pure like just like a quirky character actor, um, you know, that, that he is in the rest of the movie. Um, but he can do TV. I mean, there is a whole yeah. world out there. Wait, I mean, I'm sure, you know, he's, he's doing, so he's currently, he's currently filming with Michelle 
um, the adaptation of this graphic novel called American Born Chinese. It's um, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, it's gonna be like Disney Plus, and I think he's playing like the dad or one of the dads. Um, but anyway, it's great because it's it's work. It's Destin Daniel Cretton uh, directing. Oh, so nice, I love he's him great. So much. Yeah, yeah. So I really love that. Like it, this is a thing that he has said which is, um, you know, he, he acknowledges that, yeah, like for a lot of us Asian Americans growing up in the 80s, um, he was, he kind of like really laid the foundation for what later came. But he then he, what he says after that is he says, like, I acknowledge I've laid the foundation, but now I feel like everybody who's come is now laying the foundation for me to come back, you know, in, wow. in this kind of beautiful full circle way. Um, so the meta story of that is 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 a beautiful Hollywood comeback story. I don't say this lightly. Like if this film is going to go, sorry, this is the industry trade reporter in me. If if the film is going to, if A twenty four is going to try to put them up for some sort of awards contention, if I could only pick one actor from the amazing ensemble to to go for it, I mean, I would pick Key for supporting actor. Mm-hmm. I just I love. I love, I mean, I think it's got a little bit of the whole like Troy Kotzer, you know, a, a guy from mm. an incredibly marginalized background who just really gets the role that allows him to show what an incredible. And kind of steals the movie. And to do that for Michelle Yeoh is like. Is huge. <laughs> exactly. And, 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 and especially because the cast is uniformly impressive. Amazing. Stephanie, we'll, we'll talk. I hope we talk about her more. Um, and oh, she has will. a very outlandish part, but keys, all of the Waymans are, you know, they're not the flashy ones. Like he wears uh, the polo shirt and then he, with a fanny pack. And then he wears this, you know, like super debonair suit. And that's kind of about it. Um, but he's like, the second time I watched the movie, because the first time I watched the movie, I was just thinking about mother daughter stuff and and like yeah. just the sensory overload of the second time I watched the movie, I was sitting next to my husband. And so I was just much more attuned to their storyline. Mm. And and, you know, the part when it didn't hit me until the second time where like Evelyn's like she's you know, that's when she finally stands up to her father and is like embracing her daughter and her daughter's girlfriend and is like, look, my daughter's just like me. We're both a mess, but that's okay. And it's because we found people who can ground us. And it kind of just clicked for me that like that there's a mother daughter relationship, but it's, it's Waymond. It's this sort of like quiet, gentle man who provides the sort of the, the moral heart and the message of the movie he's the one who essentially pulls her back from the brink which yeah. allows evelyn to pull her da- their daughter back from the brink and that's again such a surprising choice to make it's it's going against gender types um and sort of uh so i just i love the character i love the performer anyways those are my thoughts about women <laughs> oh i i couldn't i couldn't agree with you more and gosh i have so many thoughts about this i was thinking what you were saying about this grief. I, I didn't use those words, but like this grief about the stolen mm. parts or, or the parts that were not available um, to actors like, you know, this, mm-hmm. uh, this person or even Michelle Yao. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I think you were writing in your piece because you did that wonderful profile of Michelle Yeoh, um, which I think was the cover story for THR, correct? Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Last, last month. Yeah. The March, uh, one of the March covers. Yeah. That was so good. And I learned a lot about her in that. And I think you were saying that this was originally Jackie Chan's part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Originally. So Daniels, when they were conceiving the film, they originally started by thinking like, Oh, like a, a Jackie Chan vehicle. So mm-hmm. think the main character would be Jackie Chan, you know, this husband and father, blah, blah, blah. And um, I don't think they got too far down that path. And one of the reasons was because I, I don't know this for sure if they reached out, but the way it's been, I've been told is he just, Jackie wasn't available. And then they were like, okay, well, what if we flip the genders? Like, cause Michelle Yeoh, they always wanted her to be in the movie, but they, she would play the wife. So I think right. their initial dream cast was Jackie Chan is the star of the movie. He's the husband. And then Ev- Michelle Yeoh is his wife. Um, and then they flipped it and then which made the characters different. Right. And so and then they said that when they kind of reconceived it as well, what if this is about a woman? Like, again, all of a sudden, all of these storytelling and character choices kind of start singing, you know, in a, in oh, a absolutely. harmony. Um, and so, yeah, but originally it was going to be like a Jackie thing, but then, but then I, I, I can't see, I, I think that it just, there's an added poignancy for it to be about, um, a mother, a wife and a mother, and especially a Chinese wife and a mother, because they, they, they exist to sublimate themselves. They, they, Oh, absolutely. And us, what makes you know? it so interesting too, is the divorce narrative. So in the film, mm-hmm. one of the first things you learn is that, Waymond is unhappy and is about to serve his wife divorce papers. And there's this great sequence at the very beginning where she's trying to get all her tax paperwork together and they show her running this laundromat and also dealing with this like fallout from her daughter who has never quite fit her image for what she wanted her daughter to be. And you realize that she is literally doing, she is everywhere doing everything all Mm. at once. And that is her personality that's the life she's built for herself. She spreads herself completely thin. And then there's this uh, shocker where Waymond is, you know, he has these divorce papers uh, waiting for her. And it's not the narrative you typically see. I mean, I, I don't have the numbers or anything, but just anecdotally, uh, most of the people in my life who have, you know, had divorces, they were usually initiated by the wife. So mm-hmm. I I imagine that that was maybe part of the narrative initially that the Daniels or sorry Daniels conceived, and to have it be the the father figure, um, it really shows you how vulnerable that character is. Mm-hmm. Uh, that they are willing to blow up their own life to give themselves some semblance of happiness. It's usually the other way around, where I think women more ordinarily are the ones that are like, I can't take this anymore. Whereas a lot of men are like willing to just like, you know, deal with their shit because they like having a wife. Um, This was so Mm -hmm. different. So different. Yeah. And that he's that Waymond is, he he is soft and gentle, but he's not a dummy, you know? And then that's again, something he goes, he reveals kind of to, to, to Evelyn towards in the climax is he's like, I, I know I seem like I, you might, I forget what he exact words he used, but it was sort of like, I might, it might seem like a fool, but I'm actually a fighter. This is just how I choose to fight. I choose to fight with kindness. Um, mm. And again, that sounds like such a trite message. I, hopefully you're not listening to this <laughs> podcast if you haven't watched the movie yet. Like, but, um, but the way, I don't know the way they pay it off. It's like, it, it sounds so trite, right? but in this film, it, it feels very earned. 
and so funny that we're talking about it like this it's this mushy drama i mean it's very much a random comedy with like butt plugs as visual yeah. gags and raccoons as ratatouille swinging dicks yeah <laughs> and googly-eyed rocks i mean there's so much random shit it's like oh you can't you can't not mention the hot dog fingers oh which, i love which, that <laughs> which is which is which is I, I was listening to an interview with them and they, they were talking about how you know there there's so much going on in this film and that they would try and just tell people like we can't get bogged down on it like if if you know you you have something that you're passionate about great like like bring that to us but we can't get bogged down on like all of these little little side things and so they kept like they were like oh you know the hot dog sequence is isn't going to be a big sequence like it's it's fine like we don't have to put that much work into it don't don't you know drive yourself crazy and apparently uh it wasn't the uh i think it was like the set decorator or someone like that was it she just took it on as her passion project like she just kept on having like oh you know what i'm going to keep working on this hot dog thing because that's what i enjoy and i am enjoying this so much and so that's that's what she did um so yeah she 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 really kind of keyed in on it but i mean apparently that happened all throughout this this film where you know you see these random things you see these weird things and um Daniels have been very open about the fact that they wanted to embrace that stuff because there's so much craziness in this film that if if it was only from their brains, it would just take a lot longer and take too much, you know, brain power from them. So they really leaned on their collaborators and, you know, their cast and crew. And the artistic design in this movie, I mean, it's truly incredible. Like the costuming, the obviously the editing and the cinematography like it all just comes together like a symphony to me and i'm not saying i wasn't annoyed at certain points because i definitely was like i'm in some ways skeptical of the the maximalism that you described rebecca because it i just started to get like really like what the fuck is happening this is too random i don't know what's going on i don't understand this bagel thing like i was definitely like oh i don't know what the fuck is happening but i feel like i know that I like this movie. <laughs> like I like who's on screen and what they're doing. It almost didn't even matter to me what the action was because there was no way in hell that I was going to be able to piece together what timeline was what and who was acting as what. And I mean, the MacGuffin was like meaningless to me. I didn't care who the villain was. Cause to me, that wasn't like the root of the story. It was just sort of like, here's the, here's the uh, artistic rendering, but, Ultimately, it comes down to the story of this immigrant woman who creates this life that she didn't think she was going to have. And she's not sure she's in the marriage she had wanted. And she's still, you know, 50 or 60 years later looking for her father's approval and not able to offer her daughter that same approval that she wants from her dad. And it's just like all this intergenerational stuff. I mean, in some ways, this movie is like a great companion piece to say Encanto, um, which is also. Oh, I thought you were going to say Turning Red, but yeah. Oh, I mean, yes, that, that too. too. <laughs> oh, you know, I well, I guess that's maybe maybe I'm the one that's on the nose. I don't know. I was just thinking like the magic stuff and all of the like colors. And I mean, I guess the mother daughter stuff is maybe more obvious. And I probably thought that when I was watching the movie, but 
I keep going back to Encanto was like this, like your story about trauma or intergenerational trauma and what it means to like, like what is home when you're in the diaspora, like that, mm-hmm. those are very uh, salient themes between the movies to me where, I mean, I, there's obviously that in turning red, but turning red is so horny to me that it, it's like, <laughs> it veers into this other question of parenthood and when to hold back and when to push forward. I don't know. They're, they're definitely a trifecta though. That, that's a really good point. Yeah. About, about, about turning red. Um, and, but I, but I wanted to say like, I was, um, you know, when you speak of like, intergenerational trauma and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, I was reading a Daniels interview today with um, Jen Yamato at the LA times. Mm. And, uh, and that's, that's another, yeah, she's Jenna's Jen is just a wonderful reporter and a, and a wonderful person. Um, but that one, she, she, she has all of these, like she goes into all of these like specific. So it's a great interview to read after you've um, after you've seen the film and you can kind of get into their Easter eggs and they talk about the hot dog fingers and why, like why that became such a big part of the subplot, um, because they were basically like trying to, um, earn, like, how can we make you care? Like, it was like a test to themselves. Like if we can Mm -hmm. get you to care and really believe in this relationship, this love story between Evelyn and her greatest enemy, her biggest nemesis, who is her auditor in the stupidest world possible, (laughs) then you know everything else will work. And so they were sort of just really, they, they wanted to give themselves that challenge. But also in, in terms of like, like everything you were just describing Robin just now about Evelyn's dilemma and the dynamics of this family, like it's been really cool to see how people can relate to this, even if you're not Chinese American. And, and it's mm-hmm. very like, there's, there's aspects of these family dynamics that are pretty universally resonant. Um, but I think Daniels said in the interview, cause they didn't necessarily set out to do like, well, let's do our Asian American movie, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but they just found as they were writing it, like Daniel Kwan, you sort of very naturally found that he was able to draw from a lot of his family um, experience and that one of the things about the immigrant generation, so I'm not talking about people, me and Dan's generation, but our parents who are the ones who did the immigrating, yeah. you know, is that really lends itself well to multiverse narratives, the whole what if of it, because mm-hmm. um, I spent a lot of time thinking about that just myself. And like when I was when watching Pachinko, you know, the Apple TV. Oh, yeah. Which is another multi, it's not multiverse, but it's multi-generational um, about and how a family can just change so much in the space of under a century, so much so that the grandparents' generation and the grandchild's generation are utterly foreign to each other. They don't even speak mm-hmm. the same language anymore. And I think about that. I think about the fact that if my grandpa, well, no, my grandparents were able to speak English, but like that many, they can't just, it's totally foreign. And so the, what if, like, what if they had stayed? And, Mm -hmm. and so Evelyn really thinks about that. I think about that with my mom all the time, to be honest with you, like my father's just just has a disability and, and she just kind of takes care of him and nobody outside of our family knows my mom's name. And I think, man, like if she hadn't married my dad and she had stayed in Taiwan, like maybe she could be president, you know? (laughs) Right. Mm-hmm. What do you mean nobody knows her name? 
like meaning like she I think she's an incredible person, but like she's only no, like she's not she doesn't have like a name, a career and established like, oh, I see when okay. she passes, nobody will know she existed other than her family. You know, and that's what was so poignant about this film. Like the first time I watched it, I started crying like 15 minutes in. Mm. Uh, and and a lot of it was just like, it's like, because I see like there's like every age, like, like, let's be honest, like mother-daughter stories are like 90% of like Hollywood Asian American stories. Like just everybody's <laughs> with like everybody has Joyla Club. <laughs> they are exactly Joyla Club did it like eight times because it was four yes. mother daughters, but like you know, with two generations. So four times two equals eight. Uh, <laughs> so we're obsessed with it. But most of the time, it's always from the child's perspective because the child is the the artist who grew up to become a screenwriter mm-hmm. or a director and is telling the story. And Daniels, they were like, no, let's write it. Let's write this from the mom's perspective. Let's center her. So Joy, the daughter, who is like our, my avatar, she's the supporting character, a very important supporting character in Evelyn's universe. And it was just like super moving to me to, to kind of just think about. I didn't even like, think about that. Well, yeah, it's, it's one of the, one of the Daniels. Da- one of the Daniels though has a kid. I think I think a three year old kid. I can't remember if it's Dan or Daniel. Um, but they have a you know a, a small child. So you know they're going through this same kind of process where now they're going to be the Michelle Yo. You know, um, mm-hmm. in in a couple of years, where they're going to try and figure out, you know, what what kind of generational trauma can I can I avoid and kind of sidestep, you know, as much as possible and things like that. Um, but yeah, yeah, they'll be they'll but they'll be slightly different though because unless they then uproot themselves and go to an entirely right. different sure. content, like there's because like that's the thing that we have had to deal with. Um, is there's like two layers of separation between a lot of us who are like first generation, our parents is that there is a, there's a gen- natural generational barrier. Cause just like the, 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 eight, the years that separate us. Um, but there's also in some cases, the language, which, which varies, right? Like, I mean, I, my parents and I can speak the same language, but the language that I speak fluently, they speak at a lower level and the language they speak fluently, I right. speak at a lower level. Um, but then culturally, there's also like, it's really hard to overestimate the, the number of times in which like, I've done something that seems completely normal to me. And like, my mom will get be like, so offended by, mm-hmm. or like vice versa. And that's just like a pure cultural thing, which I think will maybe be slightly different as like, we have kids and they grow up to sass us. <laughs> yeah, because it's like, we're already, we being, you know, the post-immigration generations are already like acclimatized to the culture. So like there are, I was thinking about this recently because my, um, so I'm, uh, I want you to say like third generation. So my grandmother, my mother's mother was born here. Her parents were immigrants um, from, from, you know, the pale of settlement and in Russia and whatever. And so my grandmother grew up as that sandwich generation. Like mm-hmm. She spoke the language. Um, she was the interpreter for her parents who didn't speak English all that well, you know, very much that um, third culture kid kind of thing. And then the second generation or her kids were uh, the kids who grew up, you know, around World War II or like a little after World War II. And that's when there's like a lot of, I talk about this a lot with my friends, but like, that's kind of when Jewish people became white, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And 
that's the time where the kids were like getting, you know, subsumed into like white culture and white America and they spoke very differently. So I grew up so far removed from you know, my grandmother's generation, but now the generation of folks who were like the, you know, the in-betweens for the, you know, who still remembered the tenements and who still remembered, you know, their parents speaking Yiddish to them, that generation is dying. Um, they, they're, you know, the boomers, so to speak, like that generation is going. And so it, it's going to be strange to me that there's not going to be a lot of Jewish people around who speak Mm -hmm. a certain way and who eat at delis. And, you know, that culture is definitely dying. And, and I married a non-Jewish person, whatever kids I have are going to be even farther removed from Judaism than I was. Cause they, I don't know if I'll send them to Hebrew school. We'll see. I mean, it's just, it's, um, it's like watching, it's like watching thousands of years of history just kind of disintegrate because I have now been subsumed into a culture that works better for me than being separatist or something like it mm-hmm. has any, has any, Generation lasted really is what I, I is this a new phenomenon? Like I don't know. It's, I, I don't know if you it's interesting. That. It's it's interesting that you're mentioning this because you know, like I had that kind of thing happen when I watched Coco, and you know, my mm. mom's side is is Latino, and it's like, wait. I don't know anything about the day of the dead, like jack shit. And we definitely don't have, you know, like a, uh, uh, what, what is it called? Why can't I remember it? Uh, the little, little, uh, altar of like family mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Well, like, we don't have that. And I, I, I remember I asked her and she was just like, my, my family just doesn't do that. And it was just like, okay, but how far back do I have to go before right. the family did do that? And, you know, when, when did we lose that? When, when it, is that gone? But I think what's so interesting about what you're describing is that we live in this age of the internet where things have gotten so fractured and so like, Oh, this is like, you can, you can find a music artist out there that just is absolutely your shit that you could like play in front of like 15 other people. And they'd be like, terrible, awful. No. Yeah. Like, that, like and you'd be like, that's okay. This is mine now. Like, I love this shit. And like music has gotten fractured. Movies have gotten fractured. You know, we can make movies on our phones and all of this other stuff. And yet it seems like overall culture has moved more towards this kind of centering around to be frank around english and around american mm-hmm. culture you know we've seen that over and over and over just simply because of how powerful hollywood is and stuff like that um you know and we export so much but i think i, I think it, it, there was some something recent where it was like chinese is like or uh was it cantonese uh is like one of the highest uh you know, amounts of, uh, uh, of language. And then like right below that is English. And it's, it's just, that's, that's a Wait, you're saying number of speakers thing. in the world. Oh, prevalence. Uh, yeah. Prevalence in, uh, in that probably, way. That's probably Mandarin. Probably Mandarin. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mandarin. All right. And so, but yeah, it's a, yeah. H- yeah, a Chinese dialect. Yeah. 
Uh-huh. But so you know what you're speaking about, Bill, is really interesting too, because so much has been written recently about how China is pulling away from Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, like less fewer films are being marketed imported. there. Yeah, not just imported, but it's also like this very deliberate, like China, China's entertainment branch is like trying to break away from that dependence on Hollywood films and there's like more censorship. And I mean, I don't even think they broadcast the Oscars this year. I know it was very deliberate last year because of um, Chloe Zhao and how they felt about her. But like this year it was just like, you know, just a wall down. So I think that's going to continue. So it makes me wonder if like America as a soft power is declining, like is part of that, like, you know, post Pax Americana, you know, death of the empire thing. I think, man, you guys are both talking about such interesting things. And I think, uh, like, I I think that China's moves are, I I think that they're, my personal interpretation is that they're unrelated from like, like whether American soft power is uh, declining or not. And I think that that's actually just the current, you know, um, President Xi, uh, Xi Jinping Mm -hmm. of of China, just um, being like, he's kind of isolationist and he also wants, he wants to sever the cultural influence of outside, you know, nations from China. And so I do think that the reversal of, you know, sort of deal-making that, that we've seen is that like, yeah, they're just like, China's basically like kind of a putting up a wall and there's like other things going on internally where they're like cracking. I mean, they're doing that with like Korea, they're, you know, they're just not interested in having these outside soft power cultural influences. They're cracking down on like, like quote unquote feminization of men, you know, which is like yeah. a very K-pop look, like all of the stuff that I think is just, you know, he's just, he's putting the wall back up. Right. Um, figuratively speaking. And so that I think that that's separate and that's his interesting, like, I think he's more of a hard power guy, you know, mm-hmm. they tried the soft power approach and it didn't work because First, to have soft power, you just need a little bit more of like a, um, like, you just need a little bit more freedom in your artistic sphere. And China's not going to allow that as long as China mm-hmm. exists the way it, it does. Now, whether or not American soft power is declining, I don't, I don't think it is. But I think that, I think that maybe it looks that way. It can look that way because soft power, like a global soft power is, is, is growing. So like, if you look at Korea being my favorite example of this is just like Korea is very specifically invested in soft power, like, you know, starting in the eighties or whatever. And, um, and so they, they um, invested in all these sectors, which are now paying dividends. And you can see the the gains that they've made in Hollywood um, and film and television and music and beauty, right? Like now CVS carries K beauty products and, and things like that. Um, so, so, so that's there, but I think that America is still, and will continue and English, the Anglosphere will continue to be the dominant language. It's interesting. Like when you were describing it, Bill, it kind of made me realize like, oh, like we may not like the United States may not be an actual like imperialist force, but if you're just looking at like cultural, like output and capital, we are like the, we're, we're the greatest colonizer. (laughs) What makes you think we're not an imperialist force? Because I think, so my argument is actually that America is an empire, but it's not fashionable to say that because it doesn't Mm -hmm. look quite like 
you know, like the age of empires or, you know, whatever France and oh, England. And yeah. Russia the only, the, that's a great point. Uh, the only reason I say that is because they're just not like being overt about it. like, we're mm-hmm. like, we're not like overtly like planting our flag and changing other countries' names, <laughs> you know, <laughs> not yet. And things like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, but, and, and part of that also, I just like lack the geopolitical expertise to, to weigh in on what's happening, like in the military industrial complex, but at least in the entertainment industrial complex. Um, yeah, like we're, we're the imperialists, you know, and, and, and the colonizers and, and, and yeah, it kind of runs the danger of, of assimilating and diluting everybody's culture, right? Like assimilating. That's the word I couldn't think of before. I kept saying acclimatize. No, I thought acclimatize was such a, I was like, man, Robin's like bringing out the, you know, <laughs> the non-generic term for, <laughs> for I just forgot a word. <laughs> um, oh, that's fine. But, but I mean, I think that culture, so culture is like always evolving. And so I think, cause like for those of us, like all three of us, right? Like we are Americans and which means that we're diaspora of like whatever respective ethnicities that we came from. Um, and so there's a tendency to think of our ancestral eth- um, ethnic cultures as like being fixed in time and like, oh, it's still that's still the way it, it's being done over there. But that's also, that's, that's constantly evolving. And like, China, China's a bad example. Taiwan, you know, is, is different. Their language and their trends are different from like, Mm -hmm. they were like 25 years ago from 50 years ago and and things like that. Um, But we, there's an opportunity, like it doesn't, like we don't all have to assimilate and become this sort of like bland, like, um, you know, this, uh, I, I don't, I, I feel bad about using this example because the people at Panda Express are very fine people, but like, you know, <laughs> the Panda Express of, you know, of, of Asian American identity, there's, there's, an op- there's an exciting opportunity to form like a diaspora culture that is truly distinct and doesn't just look like fast food, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it- it, it, it's tough. You know, I, I, I was listening to or watching a Anthony Bourdain episode not that long ago. Um, and he was I think he was in, in Korea and he was talking about how the unfortunate reality is that you either have one of two different kinds of restaurants in, in that culture and, and in a lot of, you know, cultures all around the world where it's basically you make cheap traditional food that nobody outside of the culture really wants to eat because it's cheap traditional food and they're like well why would i want to eat out of a you know a little little hole in the wall when i could go to this nice beautiful restaurant where it's kind of a mix and kind of a little bit of a different thing and it's not necessarily traditional maybe it's a mix of you know a couple of different cultures and things like that and it was the struggle of, okay, but then let's say the restaurateur has kids. Well, the kids don't want to cook food. That, that's, that's what their parents did, you know, and so they're always looking to get out of it. And then everybody wonders what happens to that food and, and why it doesn't stick around and why isn't it made anymore and why isn't it, you know, why are these traditions lost? And it's it's this weird kind of conundrum of, 
you know, the, the kids sometimes the don't threat want to of carry... upward mobility. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's like, okay, but if, if I keep charging $5 for this meal, well, my kid's not going to want to be around that. You know, that's, that's not what the kids want to choose to, to do with their life, you know? And so it's, it's this weird thing where so much of culture is about like, long term what does it mean you know like and and you look at this to kind of pull it back to Michelle Yao and 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 her family in this film you look at this and it's like why is laundromats such a thing for like Asian culture and stuff like that when they come over here? And it's because it's, it's something that is, is cheap. It's easy to understand. It's easy to run. And a lot of people need it, right? It's not going away. And so it's one of those things where it's just like, okay, but is, you know, I mean, imagine asking Stephanie, what's her last name? Shoe. 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 Imagine asking Stephanie Shoe if she wants to run the laundromat after her, her parents. And what do you think her answer is going to be? Absolutely not. Right. She's going to be like, no, I want to get as far away from this thing as possible. And so in a way you think about that and you think about like restaurants and, and like culture and some other things like that. And all of a sudden you see where that breakdown happens, where the kids just, they want to do something else, you know? Um, so it's it's interesting. Yeah, no, that totally is. And sometimes the parents, you know, especially with those, with those sort of like more working class, right? Like you're kind of working small businesses and stuff like that's the parents also would consider it a failure. If the kids took over their business, they, they are doing those things because that's the only thing that they could, um, they, that was available to them. And just like a side note, um, I think with the laundromats, I learned this from the PBS docuseries, Asian Americans. Um, but I think one of the reasons why like Chinese laundromats became such a thing is because it was one of the few types of businesses that, because initially it was just Chinese men who came over, mm-hmm. um, that they were allowed to operate. And it was because it was seen as women's work. Mm-hmm. And it it was one of many ways in which Chinese men were deliberately and systematically emasculated, mm-hmm. which is a direct connection to the media's emasculation of Asian men. Right. Like that wasn't invented with Long Duck Dong. Right. That was that was that's been around since the 1800s and the political cartoons of like dickless Asian men who, you know, like aren't real men, blah, 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 blah. It has to do with the laundries, da, da, da. Also, fun fact, side note, I just read this on Twitter today, but like, you know, that restaurant French Laundry? The, yes. Um, yeah. So apparently the reason why it's called French Laundry, like the building, because the building used to be French Laundry. And the reason why it was French Laundry is because that was basically like a dog whistle to say huh. that like our laundry is not owned by those dirty Chinese. Like we're oh, French, wow. we're French. <laughs> Fuck off. Yeah, 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 yeah. Isn't that crazy? Anyways, that felt relevant. That's crazy. <laughs> you know, I, I, gosh, everybody is saying something so, so interesting to me. And Rebecca, you had mentioned this idea that we look back to where our people came from, and we think of culture as the static thing, like that that culture is a place but not time. And I really experienced this really acutely um, about. 10 or 10 or so years ago, I, I won a grant to, to, I, 
I wrote a play about like my family's immigration story, right? Like mm-hmm. classic liberal arts college bullshit. And I went a grant to go visit the city where my parents came from, which incidentally is Odessa, um, which has been in the news recently. And what I thought was so interesting at the time was that um, so much of that culture has the Jewish culture of, of Odessa has been wiped out for pretty obvious reasons, you know, related to the Holocaust, related to like the Stalinist purges, related, related to the genocides that have happened in Ukraine, uh, you know, during, you know, post-war and everything like the Holomodor or whatever. So like there's, there's what I had imagined in my mind was this, when going to be this like bustling culture was really um, has been erased in some ways, also because of immigration, like lots of people moved over here. I'm not saying that there are no Jewish people in those areas, just saying that, you know, what, what we think of as like this uh, hold. Yeah. Like the cultural imagination of, of our grandparents or great or, or parents' homeland is actually just, you know, you can't time travel. It's in the past. And I've been thinking about this a lot, especially because I know lots of Jewish people who are like, oh, you know, I, I really feel the plight of the Ukrainians because my grandfather came from there. And I, it, and actually like, no, like you, you were, you were probably, your family was probably very separated from the Ukrainians that you're thinking that you feel united with right now. Um, like I, I have some friends who are like, Oh, well, you know, my, my grandfather was from this city. I'm like, your grandfather was probably living in a shtetl or living in a ghetto and not at all related to the people that were persecuting them. And now you have this like fantasy idea of where you came from when actually like our we are a diasporic people and there is no real origin story because, you know, Jewish people have just been hopping around Europe and, and the near East for like centuries. So it, it really is a time and a place. And it's hard for me to like, feel that soul feeling going back to a place like Eastern Europe, or even going to like Israel, which is just sort of, um, again, another, that, that cultural creation, it, it's all, it's all, I don't know, like, what's the word? Like these third, it's, third cultures. Yeah. Third. Yeah. Being third culture. Well, a lot, a lot of third being third culture is having sort of a permanent sense of displacement, which is mm-hmm. such a, such a strange, and, and that's not exactly like, right. Like I love what you just described because it is so different, right. From like, for example, my experience because like we're from a very specific place that hasn't mm-hmm. and, and my people haven't really moved around um but that permanent displacement it's it's such it's so difficult but at the same time it kind of means that yeah like your your culture is not rooted in a place and it's um it's something a lot more amorphous but no less legitimate for that fact yeah and it's not language either because mm-hmm. it's not like my people were speaking hebrew for hundreds of years, like Hebrew is a reconstructed language, or at least modern Hebrew, like Yiddish is a language of like three or four different cultures. So it's like, what, you know, like, what are my roots? And that's why I kind of feel like I don't worship anything. I worship myself. I worship the internet. (laughs) So I have a, I have a question to kind of bring it back to the sort of the, the, the theme of the podcast and stuff like that, which is that what are some, cause like, 
because a lot of times we kind of can feel very badly and say like, wow, we're neither this nor that, which means we're nothing. And we don't have a culture Mm -hmm. um, because we're not truly, you know, the, our culture of origin and we're we're not truly like, you know, this sort of like Anglo, Anglo Saxon, Protestant, you know, purebred Nordic, (laughs) you know, culture. But like, for example, like, I want to ask, like, can you think of, or are there artifacts, like cultural artifacts, such as films that are sort of, that you can say that point to and say like, this is uniquely and distinctively like the, the, my, my culture, my third culture. Cause I can say like everything everywhere all at once is one mm-hmm. of those things. It's not a Chinese movie. It's not, it, it's a distinctively Asian American cultural artifact that would not exist if there was not actually such a thing as an Asian American identity. And I can look at that movie and say like, I'm a real people. I'm from a real community. And that's not this, the, you know, like my cousins back home who stayed, stayed there, mm-hmm. you know? Well, that's but what like, crazy rich Asians is about. That's CR, exactly. CRA is one of those things too. And and I think the Asian ones are kind of a little more easier to, to pick out because, um, because of just the visibility of the contrast but I'm curious and I would love to know if you feel like we've yet received something that feels like tr- authentic to like the diasporic Jewish experience or to like Latino hybrid gram. I'm assuming that's like Irish or Scottish or something, but like, you know, like, is there like, it's German. Do you a- yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's your really Texas really? It's <laughs> not good. It's not good. Uh, no, I, I don't, I don't know about the Latino one, but, uh, you know, growing up, uh, in, in Texas, uh, I can point to Friday night lights as a movie that mm-hmm. kind of like feels mm-hmm. like my culture in terms of, you know, playing Texas high school football and, and just, everything about that um you know we we live it big down here in texas especially in the dallas fort worth area and so you know uh odessa it's it's funny robin you kept on mentioning odessa, <laughs> odessa. and i was thinking oh, odessa, odessa, yeah, <laughs> yeah i was thinking odessa permian and, and you know all that which is you know where the show is kind of uh takes place and that's where uh you know the film is kind of set and everything like that but yeah no that's that's definitely a thing you know when when one of the local high school football teams has like a 20 or 30 million dollar high school facility uh football facility you know that it it just tells you something a little bit about uh mm-hmm. the the culture down here which is which is its own fucked up weird thing where it's like okay can we funnel some of that money into our education system like wh- what are we doing we're just we're Not just 2022 you know, yeah we're just we're just having people hit each other upside the head i guess you know and i you know i i i fed into that complex i still do i try not to watch the nfl but you know i still watch college football and stuff like that and i definitely played texas high school football so you know um but yeah it's it's one of those weird things where uh that that film uh, really hit home for me when because mm. it came out right around when I was I think I was a sophomore in high school when it came out and uh, we went to a screening of it like our whole football team went to a screening of it and it just you know we got out of that movie and it was just like all right wh- where's the nearest wall that I can run through like thanks <laughs> so. that's awesome I you know I think your question is an interesting one because 
I mean, I'm Jewish. Uh, Jewish people were in some ways like the creators of Hollywood and Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. have been, you know, like maybe overrepresented behind the scenes in Hollywood and the TV industry. But there's also, and, and we can talk so much about what it means to have been an immigrant creating this business. And, and so much has been said about, um, you know, the, the Jewish studio heads and what it meant for them to be Jewish and also political and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like it's, it's not um, like these were men coming from persecuted backgrounds, essentially, who are trying to make a life for themselves. At the same time, there's been this deliberate choice amongst creatives to erase Jewishness from what was actually represented on television and in film. And, And then you get you know, here and there, like different examples, but there are so few times in say Seinfeld where they like make a deliberate or a pretty explicit reference to, to Judaism that wasn't like rye bread or <laughs> I, I don't know, like babka or something. So it's, it's, there's a, there's this phrase, sorry, I didn't need to like make this whole thing about Jewishness. Like when we're talking about like a, a film about the, the Chinese American experience, but I think that there's like a lot of through lines um, Mm -hmm. when we think about, you know, whatever immigration, but there was this, this phrase called uh, right British think Yiddish. And it's this idea that you like interpret Jewishness, but like make it white whenever you're putting it on TV. So like, like the Dick Van Dyke show Mm -hmm. for, for example, uh, was basically written about Jewish people. It was supposed to star Carl Reiner. Um, and then they just like wasped it up and got Mary Tyler Moore. And, you know, so like these are people who's like, you know, he's a TV writer and he's surrounded by Jewish people. And But he's like this stand up, you know, American man. And the people that created like Ozzy and Harriet were Jewish people. Like they, they created that ideal that now, you know, Republicans like want to go back to. It was all like a fantasy of what America was. But anyway, well, yeah, or isn't, like isn't Superman, Superman? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. yeah, 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 exactly. exactly. So anyway, fascinating. This that. is really to me like this is not the thread <laughs> that I wanted to go down necessarily, but I have been thinking about it a lot. Um, but I think you know, for as much as Jewishness, ness, like not Jewishness, but like the essence of Jewishness has sort of like permeated popular culture, I would like to see more um, like quote unquote, a pan Asian uh, ness, like be in pop culture. Like we're seeing it a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, It's coming through a little bit. And Rebecca, you've written so much about this, which is why it's so fascinating to me. And I, I wanted you on this podcast, but like, are you, are you feeling this tide shift that I think came about like yeah. years ago? I, I, I truly am. I mean, and I think it's like, I'm, I'm never going to be, I'm a long way from being overconfident about it because I think I like to say, I don't think we're out of the woods yet in the sense that I think we're probably like in 2018, we were one failure away from being put back on like in, mm-hmm. in jail, right? Like mm-hmm. media jail. And now I think maybe we're like, like, three flops in a row, three like concurrent flops in a row, like from, you know, people being like, you know, it's like, it's like Michelle Yeoh was asked by, you know, the, the new AV club, you know, like, <laughs> is this a phase? <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, we're not out of like, like the, just the possibility of being considered a phase. Um, however, I think it is, it, there is, 
It's truly different. I mean, I've spoken with um, Janet Yang, the producer of the Joy Luck Club before, and and she was Mm -hmm. telling me how back in 1993, when that movie came out, there were real hopes that that would be the beginning of something. And then it truly wasn't. You know, there was nothing between 1993 and 2018, which is 25 years. Yeah. Um, When you say nothing, you mean like a predominantly. Yeah. No, like major. Yeah. Like no major release. There's like Asians in parts, but like, I mean. Right. Or like Saving Face, which is like a. Saving Face, which is an indie, which is a beautiful movie, but an indie. Right. So I'm talking about mainstream, like something that household name recognition and Asian American, as opposed to like an Asian American, exactly. As opposed to Crouching Tiger and, and something like that, you know, truly an Asian American thing. And, and people even realizing that there's a difference between those yeah. two things. Right. Or, and or, so, or something that's not martial <laughs> arts related. Of a geisha. Right. Exactly. Memoirs of a geisha, which is Asian. It's a Hollywood adaptation of an Asian it's Asians in Asia. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and sort of like, or like Mulan, you know, the animated one, like, I love the qualifiers, but you can, you can kind of, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, though, right. Absolutely. Like, and, and so, but, but in just four years and I, you know, I cover this, so I can tell you that the amount of activity has, has changed the fact that now it's pretty regular. Like I did this thing when, when I was beginning to go to things again, as the, you know, as sort of. Mm-hmm vaccines became more widespread where I was just like, I'm just going to go to the Asian stuff, but I still managed to go to a good number of things, you know, like, and sometimes I forget that like, Oh yeah, I went to Shang-Chi last year. And then there was like mm-hmm. live action Mulan right before the pandemic. And then this, this past two, I mean, in the past six weeks, turning red pachinko, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh-huh. Bridger, you know, like Bridgerton having a major South Asian component, Uma, yes. you know, and, and the, the point about these films or about these projects is the variety of genres that they exist in. Even Crazy Rich Asians yeah. in 2018, when it came out, it came out what around about, the same time as um, Searching, which is a very different what, film. What about uh, Tokyo Vice? Is is that <laughs> kind of on, yeah. on that? I mean, <laughs> so, I, I understand that's, that's obviously not. Yeah, <laughs> I've actually uh, heard that Tokyo yeah. Vice, I haven't watched, that's a great question. I've, I've, I haven't watched Tokyo Vice. Um, I've heard that, uh, you know, Tokyo Vice is actually like, you know, they've got a cut like Ken Watanabe's character and Rinko Kikuchi's character are, are pretty full, fully dimensionalized and fleshed out. Um, so maybe we can say that Tokyo Vice is a slightly better version of the old way that Hollywood used to do things, which is straight up, you know, the and it particularly happens to Japan. I mean, it's Last Samurai 5.0, you mm. know, is it's a foreigner in the exotic culture, it's mm-hmm. still, I mean, it's based on a true story, right? Like Ansel Elgort plays an American journalist who wrote the sort of memoir or whatever that the story is based on, but still you could also frame. And in fact, like Dan Feinberg, our TV critic, yeah. in his review, he was like, the show's, you know, it's a good show, but like Ansel Elgort's character is like the least interesting part of the show. And you could just, you could just do an adaptation that centers on Rinko Kikuchi's editor or whatever, or Ken Wanabe's mm. police detective. Um, but, you know, they weren't, they just, 
they were really banking on the bankability of Hansel Edward, you know? <laughs> well, I don't know um, why. <laughs> you know, that's, but that... Speaking of, <laughs> speaking of fails, that's that's kind of two in a row for him. I yeah, guess. that was, that was, that was bad timing, but... Um, but that But that was the classic way in which things could get delivered. I mean, in between all of these milestones I just talked about was the Great Wall, and I went and saw the Great Wall. Um, and it was, it was rough. Yeah, it really oh, was. Oh, that's the Matt Damon one? That was the Matt Damon on the Great Jesus. Wall movie. Like, just yeah. hilariously transparent. And I, I should also say, too, that wasn't solely a Hollywood choice. That was one of the much ballyhooed, right. like, Chinese, China Hollywood co-productions, right? Where Hollywood loved it and China loved it. Like, I, I'm going to be very clear and say that. Who is, that's, um, that's not Chiang Kai-ge. That's um, the great... Uh, great wall director Chen um, Zhang Yimou, of course, Zhang Yimou, right? Like Farewell, My Concubine and stuff. Um, yeah. I'm probably citing all these wrong movies because it's like so late today, and I'm like, I didn't realize that he did that. No, he didn't. That's Chang Kai Go. What is oh, okay? What's <laughs> wrong with me today? I'm sorry. I I, I can't go on a. I love the journalist like click click cite click, all these like. <laughs> cite all these wrong things. Anyway, Zhang Yimou, incredible. Raise the Red Lantern. That's what I'm trying to oh, say. I Raise the Red movie. Lantern. And hero. Anyway, Zhang Yimou is the director uh, of Great yeah. Wall. He live, fully right? co-signed. Yes, yes, that's the Gongli, right? Yes, yes, to live. Oh. Yeah. So, anyways, China. That's another thing too, because at THR, not so long ago, like you know, I would have certain like editors be like, "Oh, like let's write about." People are mad about Matt Damon being a Great Wall, or people are mad about Scarlett Johansson being in Ghost of the Shell, but we asked a bunch of Chinese and Japanese people and they were thrilled about it. Mm, well, like that's yeah. because they're not the same as Asian Americans. Like, right. They don't give a crap. They're excited because they, they get to see Andy Lau in a movie every year. Yeah. But and their and identity is movies, not constantly questioned and compared in the same way. Yeah, they're surrounded by in the they, US. Yeah. They live in a monoculture where they're surrounded. They are the representation, right? Right. So it's like a completely different thing that people are just getting to uh, realize and understand. But but to go back to what you're saying, it truly feels different. It truly feels different now because there is a variety of genres. That, like we could have, like this is this. It's cool to see the the reaction to everything everywhere, like really sort of being embraced by like like true cinephiles and like hardcore like film Twitter or whatever. Mm -hmm. Because it's honestly like a kind <laughs> of validation. It's avant-garde, yeah. right? Because like a lot of people poo-poo crazy rich Asians. They're like, oh, good for Asians, but that's just a rom-com. Like, look, that movie meant a lot to me. Like, even personally, yeah. it meant a lot to me, not just- I read your piece. Aspects. Oh, the thank you. The personal essay you did. Oh my God, yeah. yes. <clears throat> Thanks. That, that's, so that movie is very, it's not a, it was for me, it was much more than a superficial representation thing. It rang true. Yeah. And, 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 and actually, I'm actually glad you brought that up because that is actually one of the things that makes that movie so realistic and everything everywhere is it has a real, it's not just about the faces. You can tell that it's made by people who straddle these cultures. And, and I'll, I'll tell you why, and it's a little bit spoilery, right? So if we go with Crazy Rich Asians first. How does Crazy Rich Asians end? Like, what's the climax of Crazy Rich Asians? The climax of Crazy the Rich Asians. The Mahjong. The Mahjong scene. And the Mahjong scene, what does Rachel do there? She throws the game. 
Yeah. Right. And, and, and it's very <laughs> subtle because people don't like, not everybody like knows how to play Mahjong. Like I don't, I barely know how to play Mahjong. I inherited my grandma's Mahjong set. Awesome. Right. <laughs> so she had, what happens in the movie and that scene is great. Um, she has the winning tile in her hand, right. While she's having this like intense verbal face-off with Eleanor coincidentally played by Michelle Yeoh. She has the winning tile, but as she basically, she, but she throws it, she discards the winning tile. She gives up, she throws the game so that Eleanor can win the Mahjong game while at the same time saying, look, I love your son. I'm going to walk away from him because I know I'm going to, oh my God, I'm going to get emotional right now. It's been like four years. But (laughs) when that, when I saw that happen, that like floored me, I was going through a very similar situation with my family and my Mm. now husband at the time. And, and, and my friends kept saying like, why, why just get married? Like your parents will come around. Like, what's the big Mm. deal? And I like, couldn't. And when I, and, and I, I went into that film expecting like, like the Hollywood version of that movie would be like the, uh, like the American values prevailing, like love Mm. conquers all. Like they, they, they are like, our love is stronger than our family resistance and they decide it's the to airplane get proposal. That's the climax yeah. of the they, other version. They, it's the, but the airplane proposal doesn't happen without her, Eleanor's ring. Right. Right. That means that the, like, and so it, they did need the family approval and maybe that feels like a compromise, but to me, it was necessary. I could not get married without my parents' approval. I couldn't, I did not get married for years. Because my version of happiness, my reality of happiness is different. And so when that was reflected in this Warner Brothers studio romantic comedy where the female lead gives up the dude, because she's like, it's the ultimate power move. (laughs) It's the most, it's the ultimate power move because she proved that she is that Asian. Because that argument, Eleanor was saying, it's not because you're poor, it's because you're American. Mm -hmm. And Americans put themselves first. And I come from a world where I gave up my law degree to, to raise my son. And you're never going to understand that. And she proved that she did. She like legit was going to walk away from him. Right. And then in everything everywhere, um, you know, the, you know, cause the climax, there's a lot, there's a lot of back and forth, right. Cause first Eleanor is going after Eleanor. Oh my God. Evelyn, thank you very much. <laughs> Evelyn, other Michelle Yeoh. Um, yeah. Evelyn, in the other, uh, in the other multiverse. In the other multiverse. In, in everything, everywhere multiverse. Evelyn's going after Joy. And then, you know, she catches her. But then Joy turns around and says, you got to let me go. Right? And she's like, just let me go. I'm in so much pain. I'm in, it hurts so much to be around you. You got to let me go. And she lets her go. And I thought the movie was going to end there or, and it would have been fine. Like it would have been like, she learned to let her child go. That's kind of the turning red resolution slightly. Yeah. Um, But then it twists again. You remember she, she like falls into the bagel, man. This really doesn't make sense. If you haven't seen the movie, (laughs) Joy gets sucked into the bagel. (laughs) She gets sucked into the bagel, but then Evelyn in the parking lot turns around Evelyn in the IRS tax office dives into the hole, right? Mm-hmm. She pulls her daughter back out. And to me, I, again, correct me if I'm wrong. I, I can't speak. I can't say that that's not a non-Asian thing. Cause I only know from an Asian perspective, 
that that like you you won't let her go. Let, that's what Evelyn says to her dad, right? She's like, how could you let me go? How could you let me live my own mm-hmm. life? And it's, it's not, it's not what you, what she thought it meant, which was like, how could you let me go? And then I, I indeed lived a shittier life, blah, blah, blah. But it was like, how could you give up on me? Blah, blah, blah. You know, again, I'm reading it through this Asian lens. And there have been times where I've been at odds with my mom and I just wanted her to go after me. Mm. That rock tumbling over the cliff. <laughs> Again, this makes no sense if you've not seen the movie. <laughs> that rock. <With> googly eyes. <laughs> falling over, you know, going after the other rock is like, there are so many times in which I was on the brink. And if my mom just went after me, everything would have changed, mm-hmm. you know? And so it was just so Asian. So that's how things have changed. So beyond like, yes, there's more projects and there are more variety of genres, but it's also the way in which these projects are telling their stories and resolving that come from a deeply, they come from a deeply cross-cultural sensibility where these creators, these screenwriters and these directors are finding resolutions that are able to ring true to both sides of ourselves that yeah. I never thought I would see. It's helping me to understand myself better. You know? So it's not just representation uh, on a surface level that you're describing, but the dyna- dynamic storytelling that is being told across these stories, like that, mm-hmm. that there's these different layers of emotionality or emotional richness, or like the fact that quote unquote Asian American isn't a monolith. I think is really mm-hmm. what you're getting at. Um, mm-hmm. And that what's what I'm interpreting is like what you're seeing is the beauty is that it's that you can tell different types of stories that have different resolutions. They don't have to necessarily follow these like stereotypical or or I don't even know if stereotypical is the word, but like archetypical archetypical uh, or they, yeah. they don't have to follow like um tra- quote unquote traditional american ideas of happy endings or traditional mm-hmm. american values of like independence uh freedom that is that's what a happy ending is a happy ending is autonomy right and like autonomy is like a very different concept to asians and as an asian american i'm very conflicted about it you know i'm yeah. both it's hard but it's cool to see that that contradiction being played out finally, you know? It's interesting too, because I've heard, I've understood that a very American, um, a very American way of storytelling is that there must necessarily be change. Like the protagonist must change in some way, must be a dynamic character. Whereas in other cultures, and I'm saying other isn't like could be anything really, um, it's actually more common to see that you know, there doesn't have to be a change. Like life goes on. Sometimes there's like this eternal return where you're just always going to deal with this problem and that's okay. And I'm curious if in fact this change does like the change in the character or the breakthrough in their relationship is very American in some ways, because there was a, there was a a breakthrough. (laughs) There was a therapeutic climax or something where there where they're never going to be the same people they were. That's such a good, I mean, that I, I, you know, I wish I knew more about Chinese philosophy because sometimes my parents will say things like that. And then I'll be like, Oh, because mm. I genuinely have no idea to me. Maybe that's the American part of me or, or, but I thought that the emotional evolution, because the movie 
the scene, it goes back, it comes full circle in terms of the circumstances of their life. They're going back to the tax audit office and they're living in the same place um, and their fortunes haven't changed, but I don't know the emotional payoff, like, although maybe it's American, but I do think it's a like Asian stereotype because like my fellow Asians, Americans, and I will always joke about like how our parents can't change. But I've seen mm. my I've seen my mom change. Like I've seen my parents change. It's it's real slow. It's subtle, and you kind of have to like incept them into it. <laughs> but <laughs> you just plant the seeds. Yeah, but um, well, I, but it I, I happens. Think... That's a good question. I think I think one thing that's interesting is talking about you know we talk about Encanto we talk about some of these other films some of these other touchstones and you know um, I can't help but thinking about like the farewell right um, mm-hmm. and oh, some, of, some of these other things where it is it's so interesting because I think it's not that some of these cultures just don't talk about stuff it's that that is just not something that a lot of cultures did before kind of the modern era i think and i think that's something that's that's definitely american but it's more of it is modern to talk about our problems openly, to talk about, you know, mental health, to talk mm-hmm. about why aren't we happy? Well, let's go to therapy and like, let's work it out. Right. My trauma. And, and it's like a lot of other cultures and, and other cultures, meaning, I guess, generational as well mm-hmm. just didn't talk about stuff right like mm-hmm. if they had issues they just continued to have issues and now it seems like we are maybe it's because our families aren't as big so it's not as complicated right mm-hmm. in, in a lot of ways um at least here in america um you know our our family dynamics have kind of shrunk in terms of you know how many kids people have nowadays and things like that um i'm not sure you know i i live in a very american bubble i'll admit so uh i'm not sure if that's also uh you know carried over across the seas in various countries and things like that but you know i i see this thing as like just cultures just in general just don't talk about and don't figure out their issues. And I feel like a lot of these films do that where, you know, it's like, okay, Gong Gong, we're not going to talk to Gong Gong about this. Like, we're just going to avoid it. And it's like, mm-hmm. why? Cause he like, can't handle it. Yeah. And it's I, just like, what, what does that mean? Like, explain that to me. Why can't he handle it? And you know, my, my grandpa used to say a lot of racist things and, it was just like oh well that's just grandpa and it's like you know i wasn't old enough to be like what the fuck does that mean like why can't i tell (laughs) grandpa not to say that shit you know Mm -hmm. and it's just like what is going on here and so you know i think i think there's something interesting going on there where nowadays it's it's very common for us to have issues and then be like well then let's talk about them and let's see if we can resolve them you know i feel like that's a modern experience so i agree with you i think that that's definitely a mod it feels because like i feel like 
like emotional repression, like is also a stereotype among like white wasps, isn't it? Like, oh, yeah. you know, like the mad men's of, you know, in that whole era. And so I, I think you're, I, I think you're totally um, right, Bill, because I was thinking it may be the reason why it's such a modern phenomenon is because artists have always been doing this, right? Like, you know, artists for, you know, centuries, you know, pre-cinema, like they've been sort of putting their feelings like on their sleeves and working through their art, working through their angst in their art. But maybe it's because of our society's relationship to media that kind of has turned all of us into, in a way, artists and creators and has made like, like the, as soon as we got the ability to, just like broadcast and amplify like every tedious detail of our lives. So like just, just wantonly to like into the atmosphere through technology. I think that we just became a much more like, like open culture where like you just are so like, you know, like whether it's like a really heavy, deep, trauma angst or just like the dumbest thought in your head like just we just are so it it just feels normalized to broadcast everything now and think of how how it's been weaponized at the same time um there's this really interesting piece in the atlantic uh that came out maybe within the last week that's about it, it has like a very you know atlantic title like like the last 10 years were like the stupid years or something. I don't know, but it's, it's actually very interesting. It's about this uh, researcher, this political sociopolitical researcher, who's talking about how um, the quote unquote, great unifier that social media was supposed to be has backfired because of the way that social media has been constructed. So like likes and shares and, you know, the things that are more likely to outrage us or the things that we're more likely to share and, and comment on. And, and so it's actually what was supposed to be the thing that was going to bring all of the, the world together, regardless of language, regardless of culture has actually just fractured us even more so. And I think that's going to the point that you brought up earlier, Bill, which is that you know, there was a time and a place where everybody knew this one song or everybody, you know, was paying attention yeah, the to this monoculture. one piece of culture. Yeah. And there's, I don't think, you know, how many, how many times have we all sat together on a Sunday night and watched the same show like we did with Game of Thrones 10 years ago? I mean, this is just like one yeah. example. Mm-hmm. Um, and this guy is talking about it more from like a political standpoint, but it's, it's amazing to me how, you know, we can all think in these pop psychology memes and we all, you know, we're all experts and we're all trauma therapists and we're all this and that. Um, but it's like, I know everything and nothing. I'm everywhere doing everything all at once <laughs> and I'm <laughs> sitting doing absolutely nothing and laying in my bed. <laughs> I think that's actually something that Daniel said about, because they started writing this movie in 2016. And it was something about like these times that that was sort of like the, so I think that was something about what you're saying uh, actually relates to, to how this movie even, you know, was born in, in their brains. I mean, it was kind of like, um, yeah, it, it's, it's that very line of thinking that led to this. It's the maximalization of life. 
Oh, I found the quote. Okay, so this is Jen Yamato's story, LA Times. Um, it said the internet had tried, this is Dan Kwan. He says um, it was part of, there's written as, to, as part of a product of the contradictions and emotional whiplash of being very online, you know, mm. at the time. The internet has started to create these alternate universe. You know, we were for the first time realizing how scary the internet was, you know, moving from techno optimism to this techno terror. I think this movie was us trying to grapple with that chaos. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's absolutely a product of these times and of this film. Everything is just overwhelming. It's too much. (laughs) Everything is awesome. I can't keep up with anything. That's what it feels like. Like I keep having this conversation over and over with my friend where I'm like, I can't. I used to be the person that used to watch every single TV show, even mm-hmm. if I wasn't interested in it, I had to keep up with the pop culture. I had to be the like knower of things. And now I can't even pop follow up with the things that I like to watch. I'm I'm so overwhelmed that I just want to run away from it all. It's like well, so, all or nothing. So, so, so what I've realized in my life is that I have to have timelines and I have to have order to things for me to become invested. So that's why I enjoy sports mm. because sports happens. And if you miss it, you missed it, right? Like mm. it, there is no, oh, let me like go rewatch that game. Nobody fucking rewatches games. Like if you didn't watch it mm. live, you didn't watch it. And, and you'll get highlights. You'll hear all about it, but that's it. And so it, there's an immediacy to sports that like a lot of other culture doesn't have. But what I've started to realize is the way that I consume things is to then secondarily consume other things. So the shows that I watch usually revolve around a podcast that is covering that show. Mm -hmm. And so like, I like listening to podcasts about things and so in this way i watch a show and then i get to talk about it with my wife or some friends or things like that but really it's so that i have you know two to three hours of content waiting on the other side when they you know do a recap or whatever so you like to really delve in I love delving in and and it's to the point where I found myself if I don't if we're watching we tried to watch Yellowstone and I just kind of (laughs) we got like three or four episodes in and I just kind of lost interest. It's not that it's a bad show. It's not that it's a good show. It's just I don't have a podcast that's covering Yellowstone. And so there's no immediacy for me to continue to watch it. Whereas sometimes there are other shows that will crop up um the boys we just started watching that i i oh, do I'm watch surprised you never watched it before and so you know this the third season's coming out in june and so it's like there's this immediacy of like let me go ahead and crush the series so that i can be up to date when it comes out with the new show so that way i can talk about it with my friends and maybe a podcast i like will cover it or things like that um you know I, i'll be honest without the podcast that we do we are literally doing right now i wouldn't watch a lot of these films and so there's something to that where it's like pulling me along that I like enjoying 
something that I can then consume afterwards. Um, I was that nerdy guy during English class in in high school or not high school. God, no. Uh, in college where I enjoyed talking about books. Like I was like, this is fucking great. We're just going to like talk about this thing that we all read together and talk about it at a high level, hopefully, you know, and like dissect it. And that's what it that's why I got into film and, and stuff like that. And, you know, writing about movies and doing reviews because that was like my favorite thing was just like getting out of a movie and turning to, you know, someone and just being like, let's talk about that. Like that was crazy. Right. Um, and yeah, I, I find that that immediacy just doesn't exist unless there's something else kind of poking and prodding me. And it's a weird reality to live in where I, I heard all about squid game and I didn't see it for a couple of months. And then Erica and I finally like sat down to try and watch it. And it was just like the whole culture had moved way the fuck past it. And it was just like, okay, well, are we not talking about squid game anymore? And people are like, no, we're watching whatever, you know, it's just like, well, shit, I missed it. And that's the, uh, you know, a uh, uh, big picture. That is why I feel like the Netflix kind of model and stuff like that, the, the just dump it and then people will watch it is so terrifying to so many different people because it's like, how the fuck do I even talk about this thing? unless I'm talking to, to someone while I'm watching it, right? Like literally like you're watching it next to me and then we can talk about it. But if you talk to anybody else and you're like, okay, what episode are you on? Uh, yeah. I'm on episode There's no six. longevity to these pumps and dumps. Yeah. Like this is why severance, which, you know, it's been like one of the biggest sleeper hits of the, the spring is because they've had this time to really build an audience. Yep. And people were like, oh, holy shit, have you seen the show? And like that took months. Yeah. But now people are really talking about it as opposed to like, oh, do you see that cool show? No, I'll watch it later. Like it's the the binge model, you know, it's this classic like junk food thing. You're just going to cram, mm-hmm. cram, cram. And then there's no meaning to it. It doesn't mean it wasn't a good show. I, I feel like people were probably talking about Queen's Gambit. They were probably talking about Made for a little while, but I don't think it has the staying power of these weekly drops. Queen's Gambit is a a great example. I think think that's one that actually broke through. And and Squid Game's another one that kind of lasted a little bit longer than, you know, it probably had any right to. Um, But yeah, Queen's Gambit, I remember... (laughs) I was I was watching a Monday Night Football and someone made a reference to a, a Queen's Gambit and it was just like what the fuck oh shit like this has gotten big you know but you know what got bigger Mayor of Easttown like it we all thought Queen's well, that was Gambit HBO. was gonna yeah but here's the thing like even when you look at awards we all thought oh it's all gonna be Anya Taylor Joy it's all gonna be Queen's Gambit that show was like the biggest fucking hit Netflix has ever seen and then. When it came down to it, people were just into Mayor of Easttown. They like the mystery. They like these weekly, mm. um, these weekly like tidbits that they get. And that was what swept all of the award season ultimately. And maybe that's also the recency bias or whatever. But I think that there's something to be said for the older models. That's interesting. I mean, I don't, 
I, I have to admit, I'm a little skeptical about how that affects awards odds, but that's just because I haven't really thought about that. But I do think you're, you're right because we're already in this oversaturated media environment where there's like 25 trending topics at the same time. And so when you do an all at once pump and dump, like just your window of it, it's just so ephemeral that moment your relevance like, is like you dropping. Could, yeah. Like you could stretch out, like, whereas you could like in the old days, especially when it was just network model and you had like 22 episodes of something, right? Like I would be obsessed with something from September through May, you know, yeah. like, and, and now it's like, okay, at, at the longest, like everything is just eight to 10, eight to 10 episodes. But if you're parceling them out, that means everybody is talking about, um, like Ted Lasso was a once a week thing, right? So everybody mm-hmm. talks about Ted Lasso every whatever week it drops for like two straight months. But if you pump and dump, then as soon as that's done, like you talk about it for two weeks and then it's old news. And that, and like, it's, you know, from an editorial perspective, that's the same yeah. thing. Like with the trades, like when we're trying to plan, like what we're covering, like if it's an all at once show, like all of your Bridgerton content has to be done in like yeah. two weeks. Cause like, even though that there's like eight episodes, like you, like you can't be writing, you can't be putting up a Bridgerton like article two months after all of the episodes were dropped. But if you had done it once a week, mm-hmm. then you could still be talking about it. Yeah. Like we're over it. I'm fucking over Bridgerton. I'm all about Julia. <laughs> that's that not even that great. It's just, just What's the Julia? kind of low stakes. Right now. Oh, exactly. all the Julia child <laughs> thing. Yeah. It's like a bit, like I, I think Leslie did an interview or something where it turns out that it's one of the biggest hits that HBO max has right now. But it's not like the, it's this not like a big Twitter thing, but the numbers are really good. So, like, I don't know what's up with that. But, yeah, low stakes pleasantness. If you just want to see Sarah Lancashire, um, BB North and David Hyde Pierce hang out for like a half an hour every episode. It's great. It's great. You for know what else? No. <laughs> oh, go ahead. It's 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 interesting, though, because I, I'm curious what what everything that happened during the pandemic and everything that's happened kind of since is is going to have an effect on how we watch movies because i feel like one of the big barriers was the the long tail between theatrical and home video release and that has gotten absolutely squashed um i know batman the or the batman uh just got released on hbo max right and it's like i we just did a podcast on that like what two months ago like Mm -hmm. that's insane that it's already out on a streaming service widely available for people to watch in their home and i don't know what that does to this idea of like longevity in a movie theater i don't know if it has to have legs inside of a cinema anymore to then continue to have cultural reverence look at turning red i mean that wasn't even in theaters at all and it was all people could talk about for a month, people are obsessed with the soundtrack. Like mm-hmm. that's a hit. Yeah. I, yeah, I, 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 think, I think it's an inevitability, right? Like there are like the industry will be forced to adapt because on demand is just something that every single industry has experienced. Like when music, you know, when mm. like 
like who I don't even own a device with a CD drive in it anymore. You know, like yeah, just yeah. on it's just, just they that. tried to resist as long as they could. And it was just they they had to adapt to the industry because audiences realized that like I love they love the convenience of on demand, but not going back. And the only things that are kind of on demand proof are like you said, Bill, content that contains like an element of surprise or anticipation, which is like sports or like, for example, I wish I could have seen like Spider-Man No Way Home in the theater because I wanted I would have loved to have gotten that surprise, mm-hmm. you know, like and experience that. And so I think the only thing that would get me to like go see something in a theater or like see it right away is because you don't want you don't want everybody to spoil it for you. But things that are like yep. very long tail, like that are just kind of slow burns, like there's no immediacy to it. But there, there's also no way to prevent that. That's just that is just the way that I believe consumption, that's the direction consumption is heading in. So that's what it was doing. The- that's what it was doing two years ago. The only thing the pandemic has done is accelerate the issue yes. because you had Spielberg going on and how there's only going to be, you know, like three tent poles a year. And that's going to carry <laughs> like the rest of cinema at home. Like he was predicting this, you know, five, at least five years ago. Yeah. Um, so that's it. That's it. going the way that it was expected. Agreed. It totally. The pandemic just accelerated it. That said, um, I do think that there will be like, so obviously like these, unfortunately it means that quieter stuff, slower burn, Mm -hmm. quieter stuff will probably go the way to direct to streaming or whatever, but it's, but, but, you know, a film like everything everywhere, like, um, you know, like, like you were saying, Bill, like there are certain things where I think those will still survive in the theaters, even though if it'll have a short, even though it will have a shorter window, um, like the communal experience, I don't think that that irre- irreplicable thing like that will, yeah. will go away. And so you'll just have or to the have bigness. the bigness, like, exactly yeah. the scale, the scope of it, um, that, so it'll, but it'll just be things like that. You know, we're not going to get like, um, I don't know what, you know, like sort of a great mid budget 1990s drama ever in a theater ever again. Well, I I think we talk about scale. I think one of the weirdest things that happened was, you know, let's talk about scale in terms of movie theaters and, and the presentation and stuff like that. The weirdest thing that happened was Christopher Nolan was kind of making this big push around the dark night around you know some of these other films to kind of go IMAX and and get it on this giant screen and just make it larger than life and then James fucking Cameron comes around and is like what if you wore glasses and like let's make shit in 3D that's irreplicable Mm. right and it's like no that is that we can do that on a on a on a, a smaller screen too like that's not and the whole industry was about to shift towards nolan i remember 300 was coming out and it was a big deal that it was being shot on imax and like uh watchmen like it, everything was like ooh, what if we can get you know shoot like 28 minutes in imax and so we'll have like full oh, screen gosh, imax <laughs> And then fucking Cameron comes out with Avatar and everything, all the industry was just like, oh, 
so you like 3D? And I was like, no, that wasn't the lesson. <laughs> the lesson was he was in a brand new world in a in you know all digitally created, and so he threw us in it and challenged us to kind of view it and like pick it apart. It didn't mean that I wanted to fucking see Avengers in 3D. Like, don't show me the fucking like. I know you shot that in Chicago. Like, get the fuck out of here. You know, it's like I don't want to see Chicago in 3D. Who the fuck? wants to see that i know i, I want to see the navi and uh whatever the fuck planet they were like that's what <laughs> pandora people... yeah pandora <laughs> pandorica oh uh, i don't pandora. know some, like, Doctor Who shit. <laughs> <laughs> but you know and so the whole industry like shifted to chase after those avatar bucks and poor christopher nolan sitting here but like he's like what about like the giant screens that y'all fucked up like and then Limax became a thing and you know where you know you would buy a ticket for like this higher end product and you were like oh yeah like i'm gonna see it on a big screen and it was like yeah it's like five feet taller and we just like throw some extra money at the laser projection and it just looks nicer and it's like well that's not what the fuck like i can't reproduce that giant screen at my at my home but also yes absolutely the communal experience of that and i think what's happened it's kind of curtailed um you know the alamo draft houses of the world have kind of come out and they've they've kind of proliferated where it's like they're the one of the only growing like movie theater Mm. businesses and it's because they give a fuck right Mm -hmm. and they'll they'll tell you to turn off your phone they'll tell you to quit talking and certain things like that and brian and i kind of butt heads every now and then because he doesn't like the the dine-in experience aspect of it because he thinks it's you know would be distracting and stuff like that and i'm like i have adhd motherfucker like i (laughs) i go to alamo almost exclusively like it doesn't bother me I, like I, I don't even know well, you can hyper focus I guess so um, it, by the time I'm seeing these movies though it's five o'clock my, my medicine's worn off but uh, you know it's just one of those things so I don't know it, it, it's interesting the communal aspect is definitely something that you just can't replicate in your home yeah. like it, it, exactly yeah because like so, home theater technology oh sorry no, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I was just saying, like, home theater technology will continue to grow more sophisticated, right? And so, like, yes, there's a limit because there's housing shortage of how big a screen can possibly get. <laughs> but, you know, like, screens will continue to get bigger. And and sound system, home theater sound systems will continue to grow more sophisticated and advanced, you know? But I really wouldn't mind it. And again, I, you know, everybody goes to the movies for a different reason, but... I wouldn't mind if the theater business becomes more of a specialty curated where it's the cinephiles. Cause mm. would I rather go be at an AMC Times Square with a giant ass IMAX screen, but like, you know, like every asshole on the planet and like sticky. Yeah, exactly. Or do mm-hmm. I want to be an experience with people who really love movies and get it and are, are, are kind of like, like reading the film, like in a, in a, and not distracted. Like I, I choose the latter experience. That was to me, like the rewarding part of seeing like this film, everything everywhere. Like, yes, it was awesome to hear Sun Lux's sound booming score. And they're such a great score, Um, you know, with, with the amazing speakers and the huge, the scale of it. 
but it was really exactly what you described, Bill, like people hearing people laugh and gasp uh, and being surprised along with people. It was awesome to see something for the first time with other people who were seeing it for the first time. And then like the quiet sniffles and, and just looking mm. you know, outside your eye and seeing somebody wipe their eyes at something like that you don't, you're not going to get, like, there's going to be fewer and fewer shared experiences in our increasingly fragmented world. And I think that type of thing will be more premium. I think I prefer going to movies with normies because every time I'm at a press screening, there's this like sneering quality. Yeah. That's that's very different. Yeah. Like, I mean, like fans, like Alamo, like, like people who bought a ticket, people who paid for like mm-hmm. industry screenings and press screenings are all full of people who are like, they think they're too, too cool for school. It's so, it's so exhausting, but like yeah. people who like paid a movie for a ticket. Cause they're just, this is their, this is their hobby. This is their love. That's, well, th- th- that that used to be the thing to do was if you wanted that experience, like that pure fucking experience, you would go to the midnight movie, right? Like you would go to the the Thursday midnight showing of The Dark Knight or, or mm-hmm. whatever the fuck it was because you knew those motherfuckers gave a shit. Right. And they would put their phone away. They wouldn't be talking throughout it and everything like that. Um, and so that that was definitely something that uh, has gone away kind of thankfully. I'm sure a lot of theater, you know, operators and, you know, staff are like, thank God the midnight movie is no longer, you know, a thing that we have to be beholden to. You know, we could show it at seven o'clock on Thursday instead. Um but yeah, you know, the earlier you see something, usually the more intense that experience is. Um, and, you know, it, it kind of goes back to the Marvel films and stuff like that, where, yeah, I mean, I, I will never forget watching Endgame in a theater with all of the people and just seeing their like visceral reaction to it. And, you know, <laughs> it, it's it's just something that you just can't replicate and you definitely can't replicate it at home like i can't imagine like waiting two years to watch in game and watching it at home by yourself like that would just be a radically different experience yeah so. i always regret seeing super bad for the first time by myself that could have benefited from a communal experience (laughs) do you guys ever do i i have this weird thing where one of my genre of youtube videos that i like watching is like reaction videos like (laughs) i I remember i I haven't gotten into that but i like watching reaction videos and there's lots of different kinds and now now it's like a whole subgenre where you like people can monetize it so now it's become kind of performative and annoying but i remember like in 2018 when black panther came out I like specifically went searching for like audience, like just so not like influencer reaction videos, but people who just kind of like either recorded themselves reacting to the trailer or like, you know, like, like, you know, kind of recorded in the movie theater where it's not, they're not doing it for pirating purposes. They're doing it to capture that feeling Mm -hmm. of seeing Black Panther for the first time. And and that one in particular, because it was poignant. I wanted to know what it was like for like black audience members just to to have their superhero mm-hmm. movie um, and kind of like really um, like experience the vicarious joy and thrill of it. So like, I remember watching a ton of those reaction videos um, and it was like, 
I don't know, maybe, maybe it's just a weird thing, but I liked that. And then also it doesn't have to do with representation too. Like I did that with No Way Home. <laughs> like a lot oh. of international theaters, like there's like reaction videos on YouTube for like people watching No Way Home in like Paris and Brazil and all of these places. And it's cool because that those opening weekend crowds were diehards. Like they were getting hyped. Like when you heard the first notes of like the original, like Danny Elfman score for the the Tobey Maguire movies. And like, they were just like hyped and like, it's like, I just, I don't know. I just like watching people who are really nerds of something, even if it's not something I'm personally a nerd of be excited. It's like a weird, it's like a weird, it's a a contact high. Yes, that's it. It's a contact high. So that's really thrilling. And again, that type of, it's an, that, that kind of thing cannot be replicated at home. So I think that will survive. Yeah. I'm, I'm hopeful. I, I, I have, I mean, I, I kind of have a good disposition in terms of my outlook on things just in general, in terms of life. But yeah, I, I just, I, I see so many people just grumbling and groaning about like, you know, the, the contraction of, of movie going at the, at the cinema. And I'm just like, yeah, but I, I, I'm okay with that. Like, I, I want it to be more mm-hmm. of a pure thing. I want it to be more of a, you know, like, I, I don't want everything on the screens because I've, I've lived through the mid 2000s where it was just like, holy shit, our output in terms of big budget films was just atrocious. It was, it was insane. And we don't get that nearly as much. And, you know, the pandemic kind of made that happen. But, you know, it's, it's just, I wanted to see that constriction happen because it, it, it was getting to an untenable degree. So mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's like a correction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So do we have any final thoughts on everything? Every, because I know you want to talk about Stephanie Shu, who's oh. really good in this movie. Yeah. I mean, I just, I mean, I just wanted to acknowledge she's so good in this movie. It's so like, so, you know, fun fact for people who might not know this, that role was originally Aquafina's, but it was scheduling conflicts, right? Oh. So, um, Aquafina. And and now thinking back, and like I, I do appreciate Aquafina um as as an as a performer, but she has such a known brand. And I think that mm-hmm. this role worked better with an unknown. And then it kind of was again nicely or with a yeah, a relative unknown, right? Um, because it worked well because you have sort of like you have Michelle Yeoh, you know, the sort of legend, you have James Hong, the guy who's been in 400 movies, you know, and, and <laughs> I mean, he's literally like, you know, going from like big trouble, in little China, like he's played every Chinese stereotype because he had to and all of that. And then key with his incredible comeback story. Yeah. And then you have this new relatively new face in Stephanie. So it was kind of, it was nice to have her and kind of be a little bit of a blank slate because Joy's character is quite surprising. Right. Yeah. Like, and I think, Aquafina. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, go for it. I, I was just thinking like Aquafina, who I love, has a goofiness that mm-hmm. I don't, I mean, this the character that Stephanie Shu is playing is goofy, but I think Stephanie Shu has a particular, I want to call it cuntliness that mm-hmm. works really well for this role. And I mean that in an intellectual way, just like it. Did you say that word with an N in it? 
Yeah. Uh, just, was it? Oh, okay. Okay. I thought you said cut leanness. No, no. Okay. Like, I get it. <laughs> I'll see you next yeah. Tuesday, leanness. Yeah. That really works in the you role. You just said it. <laughs> I, I heard cuddliness and I was very confused. <laughs> it's, it's a cutting edge that, mm-hmm. um, that I think you really need to pull off that character who has so been burned by their parent for so long, but mm-hmm. has also been uh, ignited too and has burned her mother. You know, it really, it, maybe it was the costuming. I don't know. The costuming of this movie is so great, but like it just really, really works. And she's funny and she's really good on Maisel. And that's not a show I like that much. Um, yet I feel like compelled to watch as a Jewish person, <laughs> but she, uh, she is, she has that, I don't know, like a je ne sais quoi. I can't. Yeah. Well, I, apparently she has like, you know, an, an improv background because like, well, like I remember one of the things that really made me like, be like, man, she's real. Like, I can't imagine anybody else in the role is because in that hallway scene, right. When she sort of first reveals oh. <laughs> herself to Evelyn and, and she, you know, the big, and she shows her the bagel and then she does this weird, like belly, she goes, suck into a bagel and it's like so weird it's just like <laughs> such a deeply weird choice uh, I asked her I, I did an interview and I asked her about it and and she was like yeah that was, I, th- I think she she did that in an improv during maybe a table read uh, uh. or something and Daniels were like oh do that again when we film when we shoot like I she was just that. like try, right so I think that her she she's brings, like she's riffy and you kind of, and, and that seems to perfectly match with Daniel's sensibility of just like try everything. Um, and, and her, like her unknown quality makes her very da- makes her character very dangerous. Cause you don't know what she's capable of, you yeah. know? Um, and, and also kind of like, power. <laughs> yeah. Like, so it, it's incredible. And yeah, like the costuming and the, the, the like costume designers, Shirley Parada, like just so wildly inventive. And I, I don't watch Mrs. Maisel, but I knew she was a supporting character in that. And um, she's in Shang-Chi. She's the, oh, she's, she's the friend. like the friend. Yeah. The judgy friend who's like judging yeah. Shang-Chi and Aquafina for doing nothing <laughs> with their life. Right. Huh. And, and so that was another layer. Cause I remember, and, and again, if, if filmmakers like Daniels don't exist and if this film that, you know, has these parts open to these Asian American actors don't exist, then Stephanie Hsu is just one of many, like, you know, just like Asian American actresses who like, you know, just pop up in these supporting roles. And then they've just become a, like a, Hey, it's that lady type of yeah. trope. Um, and you would have never known she was capable of this kind of range. There's um there's this character actress who I love who I even feel bad calling her a character actress because she could do so much more. And of course now the minute I want to think of her name is I'm drawing a blank. She's in Russian doll. Um, oh my gosh. Oh, uh, Greta Lee. Greta Lee. I love Greta Lee. And I know her name. I just got like anxious mm-hmm. for a second, but she is, I, I, always say to my friend um like i where is her starring role i'm ready for that like she isn't writing it recording. she's you, you gotta <laughs> a drama i don't know if it's still in development but she's writing a couple of things but yeah great example um yeah i'm so ready for her to like break through like how much <laughs> like how much fucking time do you need she's been around for 10 years but it's not but how many greta lees are out there right mm-hmm. 
How many Greta Lee's? How many Stephanie Shoes? How many people? Like, how many keys? She's in the other key show, apparently. Yeah, she's in is morning it, show. isn't Morning Show? It, I have not watched Morning Show, so I'm just Morning like, Show is it. very decidedly not a good show. Um, I've watched both <laughs> seasons, and I don't know why. <laughs> is it, it true that in Morning in. Show they make a big deal out of like having so many people of color cast members, but they're all firmly in supporting roles where they don't really, they're not really driving any of the plot yeah 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 they 100 do um they've got like so many minority characters that are inside roles and the the weird part is that the first season there is a a uh, a black man who constantly brings up the fact that he is one of the like token tertiary people of color on the morning show the morning show and i'm like it's fucking bananas that the morning show the show is not aware of the fact that it's telling on itself in this way. It's so weird. Yeah. Who's not surprised by that? Um, yeah. So I think, uh, gosh, Brian, you missed a great conversation. Um, yeah. Exactly. It was actually not so much about the movie. I apologize for that. <laughs> no, so no, this is great. Oh, I had oh no. Time. An episode of the film stage show where the conversation didn't actually stay on topic of the movie, but instead possibly turned into an examination of our own lives and society at large. Unheard of. <laughs> but I think that's what makes this episode work very well because like so much of everything everywhere at all once has to be experienced and a lot of it is just like some Michigas that is fun and weird and just kind of random and sensorial. And it's really hard to pinpoint that and like dig deep without sort of just being like dry about it. So I'm kind of glad that we went into more of the cultural touchstones of the film and not like picking apart like the aesthetic choices. Mm, okay. I'm glad that that makes me feel better. Um, I, I will say that it like really, I like the way you just described that, Robin. Um, I, 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 I just wanted to quickly mention, like, again, it, it holds up well to like, you know, go in, this is for Brian's benefit, I guess, like go in as cold as you can, meaning like, right. you know, try not to overread anything. But also if you have the opportunity to, if you have the opportunity to, it holds up really well under repeat viewing, because first of all, it's so mm-hmm. dense mm-hmm. that like, you know, like the first time you're, it, you're just on a roller coaster and you just kind of have to like let everything wash over you. And then like, for me, it was like, I've seen it three times. Like the second time I was able to pay attention to more of the emotional through lines. Mm-hmm. But then the third time I was really paying attention to the craft, like particularly like the editing and like the, like the ordering of see, cause I knew it was coming up, but it was cool to see like, ah, okay. So then they had to cut here to do this. And then they, cause they're jumping between universes and it was really rewarding to see that. And that's, that's amidst, in, amidst all the, like the, just the Easter eggs that they're littering in there for just, just for fun. So um, there's a lot to appreciate in the everything bagel that is this movie. You know, I've, I've heard <laughs> um, good things. Yeah. And in fact, uh, my friend Mariko from the dog park and her husband Drew have, uh, it's funny because she asked if I'd seen it and I was like, no, not yet. And she's like, I've seen it twice. And this is, I mean, it's, it's only in theaters and this is not a person who, you know, is like a crazy movie head. So I was like, oh, okay. Mm. That's impressive. Like for a, and what, if what a endorses it, it's either 90 day fiance 
or something good. Oh, I was about to say, what do we call them? Do we call them civilians? Is that what you and I were calling them, Robin? I've used civilians. I've normies. become a bit of a, like a Redditor, just like the normies. Oh, I'm never going to use the term normie because I always feel like that's like three steps away from like bombing something. Like, just... I mean, I'm an incel at heart, so <laughs> is, I gotta do. What is... I'm sure that there is an R married incel, but like, is that... A... <laughs> Is that a thing? It's called Dead Bedroom. Oh, yes, that is what it's called. That is a real Dead Bedroom. Oh, wow. my God. Wow. Jesus. I've H- learned so Christ. much today. I, I have only been on this podcast for 15 minutes of the two hours and like 10 minutes that it's been going for. And uh, I learned a lot, too. Oh, my God. Right. Yeah, get out of here. We gotta yeah, we got to get out of here. This was a super fun conversation, Rebecca. You're one of the best guests we've had like so oh far gosh. this year, um, which I I'm just totally in the glow. Hooray. Oh, well, thank you. I just wanted to not bomb so badly that you regretted your choice. And uh, if you'll ever have me back again, I'd be happy to do it. Yes, not at all. Not the at next all. Time we would love I to have, have you back. Seen the movie. <laughs> Maybe we'll see. <laughs> You're not invited, Brian. It's a girls club. And Bill. And Bill. <laughs> <laughs> you're the you're the Spencer. Who's the boy in the fort and the townies in Turning Red? Um, Wait, because oh, why? Right. Oh, boy. The, the like the fan club. Oh, no, Tyler's guy, allowed. Tyler, yeah. you're the, you can be the Tyler. Yeah. Yeah. Again, again, Bill is here. <laughs> like, hello. <laughs> No right. bear. Well, awesome. Glad that this was a crepuscular <laughs> episode. And um, <laughs> extremely crepuscular. Did did someone use the word crepuscular in all of your conversation? No, we you own that. That's all yours. Right. That's mine now. It's your baby. Cool. Bill's got nubile. I've got crepuscular. <laughs> <laughs> I have cuntliness. Yeah. Oh gosh. <laughs> I feel like you're the only one who's allowed to have that one of the regular roster. <laughs> That's all right. Yeah, you can, I you did can the have vagina monologue. I don't feel like I, I, I have I'll have Cromulent. I was perfectly. Oh, cromulent. I was just thinking cromulent today because I was eating matzah and I was like, this is so cromulent. It's perfectly yeah. cromulent bread. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I am. Um, Robin, you saw the picture of the bread that I made, right? It was beautiful. It was yeah. a Renaissance painting. <laughs> Thank you. In um, fact, you could put it on modern Renaissance like Reddit. I, Robin, you and I are going to have to talk. I don't read it. I'm not, I'm not a Redditor. Yeah. You're a TikToker, like a teenage girl. I, I lurk yeah, though. I don't is. create. Um, so mm-hmm. but like, gonna, I don't know if that's crepsecular. Crepsecular? Crepuscular? Anyway, yeah, what I was going to say, Robin, is that you got to tell me where to go on the Reddit so that I can become a part of it. And, uh, yeah. So, so choo- you don't want uh, no part of that shit. Well, I apparently have to post a picture of my bread. I was going to make some kind of joke about leavening and that's uh, but now I I've lost the thread and so it doesn't really matter. Constantly appropriating my culture once again. Yep. <laughs> anyway. All right, let's get out of here. For Rebecca. Indeed. Um Awesome. Glad to hear that you had fun, Rebecca. And I'm uh, very sad I was not able to be a part of this. I look forward to listening to this episode once I'm finally able to see this film, which should hopefully be soonish. But yeah, that's it for today. Um, don't forget that you can follow us on uh, Twitter at Film State Show, Facebook, The Film State Show. Go to patreon.com slash Film State Show to give us your money. And we are brought to you by Mubi, M-U-B-I dot com slash Film Stage for a free 30-day trial subscription. Robin Barr, what are we talking about next week? 
the Northman. Yeah. Super, super excited to talk about uh, the Northman from Robert Eggers. Um, until then, let's tell the fine people at home where they can find us between now and the next time that we're shouting in their ears. We begin with our guest, Rebecca, where can people find your work online? Oh, uh, well, my social media media handle is at the Rebecca Sun, and I uh, am on staff at the Hollywood Reporter, so contractually not allowed to publish elsewhere. Woo-hoo! Take that, every other Rebecca Sun. You are not the Rebecca Sun. <laughs> Unlike Daniels, which has some kind of <laughs> Rebecca has decided to own it. <laughs> because it was already taken, of course. The at Rebecca Sun was taken by somebody who doesn't tweet, of course. Yeah, oh, it's always Bitch. taken. It's Brian, always somebody who doesn't tweet. At Brian Rowan hasn't said shit in years. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway. But now you're specialer. You're Ryan J. Rowan. I am Brian J. Rowan. I love that your your husband like basically like walked up and was like, Brian J. Rowan goes to the film stage. Yep. MUBI.com. <laughs> I was like, yes, thank you. Oh boy. Anyway. Bill Graham, what about yourself? Uh, you can find me playing Elden Ring and dying constantly. You can also find me mixing it up on the Slack channel where I'm actually being active. I I have read all you the threads. Swing uh, in to defend Taika Waititi. Yeah, he he needs some defending, I guess, because yeah. people are like, oh, that that Thor Love and Thunder teaser trailer didn't get me hyped <laughs> enough. And it's just like, Jesus Christ, people, this movie's like three months away. What the fuck is wrong with y'all? <laughs> they need a lot of foreplay. I guess so. OK, uh. Is that it, Bill? You just want to say that you're mixing it in Slack channel? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. OK, cool. <laughs> All right. Robin Barr, what about yourself? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at R-O-B-Y-N-B-A-H-R. I am the only Robin Barr on Twitter that I'm aware of. Also, I've You've highlandered like the rest two- of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I I, uh, I think I got mine in 2009. I was like an early adopter of Twitter. Um, so I was on that shit. And uh, you can also sometimes find my writing at The Hollywood Reporter. I'm not on staff. Yay. I'm a freelancer. Uh, um, but I'm very happy <laughs> uh, of, to be a part of that group. Speaking of Highlander, was there any... Did anyone Highlander. during the course of this... Co- yeah, because Rebecca said that you Highlandered all the other... Oh, books. yeah, that's my reference oh. to, like, you know, there can be only one. That's the highlight. Uh, if you... Maybe that's too old of a reference, but there used to be this TV show with Christopher Lee, and there could be only one, so you have to kill everybody else so that you are... I it was like a movie you. first, right? Yeah, it was a movie first. <laughs> okay, the reason I brought that up is because, speaking of there can be only one, during the course of this conversation, did anyone bring up the 2001 action film The One starring Jet Li? No. No, I know that people have used that reference, but I've actually never seen The One, so. Well, but I know that people have, because apparently it's like a multiverse movie It as is, well. yes. It's, it's Jet Li versus Jet Li. Ah, uh, see, if you had seen the movie and participated in the conversation, then you would have been able to incorporate that insight. I know. But. See, this is why you need me here, because every once in a while I bust out some Jet Li knowledge. Uh, speaking of, uh, I think the B-side uh, I was on for Jet Li, so check that out, our sister podcast. And if you'd like to watch the one as part of a double feature with Everything Everywhere All at Once, it is apparently on Netflix right now. Mm. Hell yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, Robin, anything else to plug? Uh, I think Rebecca's a wonderful writer and you should read everything she does. Oh, 
thank you, Robin. It's very nice of you. And I feel the same way about your stuff. Oh. All well, right. As for me, uh, if you'd like more of the snappy insights that I gave on this episode, uh, follow me on Twitter at uh, Brian J. Rowan. Uh, <laughs> Facebook, Brian J. Rowan. Uh, my personal site is brianjrowan.com. And on Instagram and Letterboxd, I can also be found at Brian J. Rowan. Uh, yeah, what more? Uh, my uh, whiskey, uh, inkwellwhiskey.com or schmidtspirits.com. And of course, you could find my writing at thefilmstage.com and every episode of this podcast is also located at that fine online outlet so that is I have it. one more thing to add please it's do it's accidental renaissance not modern renaissance so go to r slash accidental renaissance on reddit oh okay ah. for, the, for the photograph yes and the other one is dead dead bedroom <laughs> Dead bedroom. <laughs> I'm terrified. Also, um, Highlander stars Christopher Lambert, not Christopher Lee. So I had to make that correction. So oh that yeah, yeah. Right. Christopher Lambert is Lambert. Lambert, of course. Uh, Lambert. Sean Sean Connery, right? Yes, that's correct. Yep. Who also stars in The Rock? It all comes full circle. <sighs> full circle. Yeah. Uh, last week we talked about <laughs> Ambulance, which was directed by Michael Bay, who directed The Rock. Anyway, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us, and tune in next time.